Good morning, everybody. Apologies for the slightly late start. Um, the trains have once again um, pushed us back. Um, so welcome. Welcome to our first face-to-face -face, uh, conference in AGM since 2019. Um, it's fabulous to see you all here and for all of you to be joining us from home as well, our first hybrid conference as well. Um, so my name is Matthew Carr. I'm going to be one of your hosts for today. Um, and it's my job to give you a few housekeeping bits and pieces as we start the day off. Um, so um, we're not expecting a fire drill today for anybody who's in the room. If the fire alarm does go off, it's a high-pitched shrill um, and staff will be on hand to escort you from the building. Um, for anybody who's familiar with the area, it's Lloyds Bank on New Street, which is where we will meet. We have a photographer with us today. Curse is in the room, snapping. I can hear a snapping. She's at the back of the room. Um, is anybody not happy to have their photograph taken today? If so, can I just have a show of hands? I'm visually impaired, so I can't see, so that's all good. There we go, perfect. Um, that's what I want. Well, lots of laughter today, lots of interaction with you guys. Um, toilets, if you need uh, to use the toilets throughout the day, um, we have a disabled toilet, which is at the doors at the back to your left on this level. The males are upstairs and the females are down the stairs. Um, again, speak to a member of staff if you're not quite sure or you need some assistance to be guided there. Refreshments will be served in our exhibition space, which is the room next door, so the room to our right. Um, so please do take time to go and see the exhibitors there and um, enjoy your lunch and your refreshments throughout the day. There is complimentary Wi-Fi here. Um, so if you want to, to log on, um, it's the Burlington Guest Wi-Fi you do not need um, a password for it. So please flood your social media today to tell your friends where we are. Um, we have a hashtag set up, which is hashtag retina UK conf, C-O-N-F. Um, so please do tag away. Um, we welcome your questions throughout the day. So we have a number of sessions where you can ask your questions. Um, there's a number of ways you can do that. So if you're in the room with us today, um, you can either raise your hand at the appropriate time and we'll bring a microphone around to you. Alternatively, if you would like to write your question on a card, you'll find those in your delegate bags and there's a little post box on the staff table at the back of the room as well. For those of you who are at home, um, we have enabled the Q&A section sorry, um, on Zoom, um, so please leave your questions in there and try not to use the chat because we may not see your questions so the q a will be great any questions we're not able to get to today we will follow up after the conference uh, we are joined by a couple of wonderful um, bsl interpreters today um, so they're at the front of the room so if you require those services whilst you're here um, they are there for you and for those at home um, you should be able to see them on the screens as well finally i just want to say thank you once again enjoy the day, interact, ask questions, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome, to welcome you as well, our CEO, Tina Garvey. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Well, the train system has completely knocked over my first sentence, which was to thank the miracle of rail travel to get here. So um, we're going to start somewhere else. But I would like to give a genuine thanks to everybody who's here today, whether you have made the, trail sister, uh, the train system or you've got here otherwise, or you're on the miracle of Wi-Fi, which is what we've all become so dependent on, on, on these days, certainly. 
I'd like to put a special thank to all of our staff and our volunteers and our community for coming together and putting the huge amount of effort it takes to pull a day like today together. I'm also very grateful for our financial sponsors who can't, we just can't do this sort of stuff without their support. And that's for Janssen, Procure, Santan and AGTC. We really do appreciate all the support that you guys give us. Retin UK is a unique charity not just because we are the only charity supporting and funding research exclusively for the IRD community, but because of who we are and where we came from. 46 years ago, Linda Cantor started something for a group of people where previously there was nothing except a diagnosis, a well-wish, and advice of to go home and prepare for blindness. And she decided to change that and change it she did. With other members of the, of the IRD community, they came together to start funding research to change the status quo and the search for treatments. And it has been a long and winding road with many setbacks and complications that come along with trying to solve the challenges a group of rare genetic conditions creates. But this community has never wavered, either in its drive or the support of the charity that they created. And it's that same ethos of togetherness, supporting each other, and the charity listening, reacting, and being at the centre of the community that still remains. And that's what makes us so special. That mutual motivation to move forwards that has helped the charity grow over the last half century, resulting in £17 million of research funding, and a community that has a voice, and importantly, each other. And we, the charity in turn, respond to what you, the community, our boss, needs and helps fund. We are entirely committed to listening, supporting and continuing the search for delivery of treatments on your behalf. And we are still a charity that receives no government funding and we need your support like we always have. We are your charity and we rely on our community to support us through sponsorship, fundraising, donations, involvement and getting us to do what you want us to do. And for over 40 years, you have done an incredible job. You have never let us down. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. As you know, there's no charge for coming to the conference today, nor would we ever wish there was one. We want our events to be open and accessible to all of you. But if you can help support the work we do, please do. You do have a little envelope in your bag for this purpose, or please speak to any of the Retina UK staff in the exhibition area. Visit the website, it's really easy to use and every little helps. Your continued support makes all of the difference and it helps us fund more research and be here for all of you. The staff team that are here today in blue polo shirts, if you need one, just shout, have consistently worked so hard on your behalf and they've planned a really fabulous day for you, whether you are sat online or if you're in the room with us. And it's based on what you told us you wanted to hear about. And as always, I'm super eager to get going. But before I do, I really want to introduce you someone to you. Many of you will know that Don Grocott, our long-term chair, retired at the 2021 conference, which we put on entirely online. And what that didn't do is give me the opportunity to introduce Retina UK's, well, new, it says new, but new-ish, I think would be fair to say now, our new chairman, Martin Kirkup, 
Martin's going to say a few words of welcome for you today. Enjoy your day and thank you very much. Thank you, Tina. And good morning, everybody. It's fabulous that so many of you have been able to join us here in person today, but we're equally delighted that such a large number of people are going to be joining us and following us online. You're all extremely welcome. Now, even though this is the first time that I've spoken to you as chair of Retina UK, um, I've actually been working with the organization and the trustee board for a year and a half now. And I have to say that it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor learning about and getting involved in the work of the charity. And even then, the work that Retina is involved in is not all new to me, as I've been fighting for progress on Stargardt's, the disease from which my son suffers, uh, for nearly 20 years. It's been a pleasure to join you here today, and I look forward to speaking to as many of you as is possible in the course of the day. I hope that many of you will also be able to join us at the end of today when we will have a short formal uh, AGM session that I'll be chairing. Now there's no hiding from the fact that we live in challenging times. It seems that no sooner do we start to emerge from under the COVID cloud and we're immediately rained upon by downpours of economic doom and gloom made significantly worse by events in the Ukraine. Oh, and another wave of COVID of course. And the sequence of events may be unrelated and the events may be very different one from another, but the consequences are all the same. Economic stress that greatly affects our ability as a charity to raise funds, stress on health services and stress on our everyday lives. So what can we do in these challenging times? What we have to do is maintain our focus Nothing should distract us from our mission to find treatments and cures for retinal dystrophies and to raise the funds necessary. <coughs> Excuse me, COVID's still with me after a few weeks. <coughs> Nothing should distract, sorry, to raise the funds necessary to support such initiatives. At the same time, we will continue to listen closely to the needs of our community and provide them with the support that they need. We hope very much that you enjoy the sessions that have been put together for you today. So I'm just going to briefly outline what those are. You asked to hear more about clinical trials, and we have a session this morning that addresses precisely that. We will be offering a Q&A session on research. We move on to a session addressing technology for everyday living. And then after lunch, Dr. Mari Thurston will be here to talk about awareness of your own well-being and the tools to manage day-to-day -day stress. And this session has been put together as a direct response to the requests that we've received from the community. This afternoon's session will be rounded off by a presentation by Tina. Um, she will be talking about how insight and experiences are driving our plans to encourage and fund high-quality research and to better support our community. So it only remains for me to say that I very much look forward to the rest of the day and to meeting many of you in the course of the day. Thank you.
Right. Thank you ever so much, Tina and Martin, for opening up today. Um, according to our recent survey, um, just over half of people um, responded. So 54% um, would like to participate in clinical trials or some other kind of research, but so far haven't. Um, and a further 20% have also participated in research and 26% say they do not want to. Um, so these percentages have been very similar in our very recent 2022 survey. So to talk us through the process of uh, clinical trials, I'm delighted to welcome to the stage um, Dr. Mittal Shah, a Senior Ophthalmology Re Registrar at Oxford Eye Hospital. Um, he's also an honorary uh, clinical lecturer in ophthalmology at the University of Oxford and a research fellow at the Thames Valley and South Midlands Clinical Research Network. That's a mouthful, isn't it? So pleased to um, enjoy this first session, Dr. Shah. Thanks very much uh, for the introduction and thank you for having me here today to speak to you uh, about clinical trials. So I'm here to talk to you about the clinical trials process um, and more specifically, uh, I'm going to talk about the different phases of clinical trials. We'll talk uh, a bit about what screening and enrollment uh, of a clinical trial might involve, uh, why it's important for particularly phase three clinical trials to incorporate control. We'll talk, some, uh, talk about sort of what sorts of endpoints and measures clinical trials um, might be looking at some of the benefits and risks that you might want to consider if you're thinking about taking part in a clinical trial and finally touch on um, some of the outcomes of clinical trials. So what is a clinical trial? Well, essentially it's a research study that uses volunteers, which, who are also called participants, and that intends to add to medical knowledge. And when you think of clinical trials, many people may think straight ahead at uh, treatment trials, but actually there are a number of different types of, of clinical trials out there. Um, so interventional trials where either a particular drug or a device is being investigated um, would fall under the umbrella of, of treatment trials. There are also observational trials where no direct treatment is being um, offered, there's no intervention involved, but participants are monitored over time. And for example, this might form part of a natural history study, which is important for us to help understand how diseases may progress over time. And finally, there's also qualitative studies. Um, and these studies use interviews and questionnaires to try and find out uh, or to answer specific research questions. So I'm gonna talk a bit more specifically about treatment trials, um, sorry, uh, uh, for the rest of the talk. Um, so these treatment trials are usually carried out in four phases. Um, phases one, two, and three tend to occur before uh, any regulatory approval. And phase four occurs after a particular drug, let's say, has been approved for use in patients. The clinical development process for drugs is both time-consuming and costly. And it can take sometimes decades and cost up to billions of dollars for a potential candidate drug to make it through to approval to be used uh, in patients. And th this process is also risky. So just over one in 10 drug candidates that enter at a phase one trial may only make it to approval and, and to be able to use in patients. 
So phase one trials um, aim to investigate dosage and safety of a treatment. Um, they can also be used to help try and find the correct drug dosage to use. And these experimental treatments are usually tested in small groups of participants. And depending on the um, treatment being investigated, these may be healthy people. Phase two trials aim to provide additional preliminary data on whether or not a particular treatment works in those participants uh, with a specific disease. Uh, it can also help to detect early signs of whether the treatment's working or not and what the possible side effects of that treatment might be. Again, phase two trials are also usually conducted in groups of small participants and these, can, these trials can last up to several years. Phase three trials are used to try to demonstrate a statistically significant treatment effect when compared to a standard of care in a wider patient population. They can be used to gather more information about how safe a treatment might be and, and its potential effectiveness, and can also be used to study um, the treatment in different populations of people and at different doses, and occasionally using a particular drug in combination with other drugs. Phase three trials use more participants than phase two trials, and depending on the treatment being investigated, this may be tens or hundreds of patients. And the key thing about phase three trials is that the regulatory approval, and that's approval in order for that treatment to then be used in patients, um, is usually based on the results of that phase three trial. But mo and most of the cost that's associated with drug development um, and the time spent is on these phase three trials. So why do phase three trials take so long? So there's a complex sort of uh, diagram on the right side of the screen, which um, essentially just outlines the clinical trials route map. Um, this was developed by the NIHR, or the National Institute of uh, Health and Clinical Research. But the main thing I'm using for this, or using this image for is just to illustrate how complex that process can be. So on the far left, you're starting off at the beginning of a journey, trying to plan it and uh, plan a trial and design how that trial is going to be conducted. And all the way on the right, it's at the point where the trial has been completed, you've collected the data, the data has been analyzed, results have been published, and, and, and the data archived. So I'll talk a little bit more in detail about certain points related to the trial. So for a research team who's looking to start a, a phase three clinical trial, the first step is to develop a trial protocol. And this is essentially a a, a document that provides a full description of the intended activities of a particular trial, um, all the way from setting the study up through to collecting results, analyzing them, publishing them, and archiving the data. And it's something that's used to monitor how well the study is progressing over time and as a manual for the research team that's involved. Gaining sponsorship approval is important because it's the sponsor who takes a legal responsibility for a trial and also provides trial insurance. And usually the sponsor tends to be either a research institution, and that may be a university or a commercial organization, or a hospital trust. Researchers then also need to find funding, and this is to pay for both the trial and any associated costs. And they may include things like funding salaries for research staff, funding any costs that may be associated with treatment and any, uh, any placebo, costs for laboratories, costs for statistical analysis, application fees, participant expenses, publication expenses, etc. You then also need to get approval from the Medicines Healthcare Products Regulation Agency, or the MHRA, and the MHRA provides a clinical trial authorization, uh, which is legally required for experimental drugs that are used in patients, 
or if existing treatments are used in an experimental way. And the MHRA will look at its, um, whether it's reasonably safe based on the available evidence um, for a particular uh, uh, experimental treatment, um, and whether or not there's a plan by the researchers for detecting any potential problems that may occur, and if there's a plan in place for trying to protect those participants from any potential problems where possible. They also need health, uh, health Research Authority or HRA approval, um, and this is required when working with NHS patients, NHS data, and staff and facilities. And finally, you need NHS Research Ethics Committee approval. And the Research Ethics Committee is an independent group that comes together to try and decide whether or not the risks of any proposed treatment outweigh uh, or outweighed by the potential benefits. And also to, to make sure that the research team have made sure that the safety of each individual participant is greater than the outcome of the trial overall. And once you've got all those approvals, um, you obviously then need to identify sites where the research might actually be carried out. Usually, that's a process that's done in conjunction while the approvals are being gained. But at each local site, so for example, if that's an individual hospital trust, that trust will also have its own local approval processes. And the reason those are needed is to make sure that that site is able to uh, provide the resources and the capacity and capability to successfully conduct that research study, making sure, for example, the correct, um, well, one, there are enough patients within that region to be able to recruit to the, to the study, and that the appropriate bits of, um, of kit, uh, be that imaging equipment, etc., uh, that are required for the, the study are available. Only once those local approvals have been made can recruitment actually start. It's important to point out here as well that for treatment trials, um, many of which may require more than one site to be, um, or for more than one site to be uh, recruiting participants. Um, these may be nationwide or sometimes international. Um, and in those settings, each local site, the approval process may take different amounts of time. And sometimes depending on how many participants need to be recruited, um, it can be that additional sites will be recruited or initial site, additional sites, sorry, will be taken on board once initial recruitment has started. And it's only once that final patient who's been recruited has finished the trial protocol that the final data can be collected, analyzed, and the results disseminated. So use, applying that sort of to a, a more real-world example, so uh, Lux Turner, which was the first gene therapy for a genetic disease to be approved in the USA, their phase three pivotal clinical trial was started in November 2012. And that study recruited 31 participants at two sites in the USA with a primary endpoint at one year. And it wasn't, wasn't until almost five years, so July 2017, that the results of that phase two clinical trial were published in The Lancet. And then in December 2017, the FDA, so that's the US Food and Drug Administration, approved Luxterna for use in the US. And it wasn't until November 2018 that the EU um, approved Luxterna. So moving on to then phase four clinical trials. So these, sorts, these trials take place after the drug has been approved for use. And they're important to help monitor the drug's effectiveness and safety in a much larger and diverse patient group. And this is also because sometimes side effects from drugs may not become clear until more people have been taking that treatment over a longer period of time. So the researchers will have done all that work to try to get to the point of recruiting participants. And as a participant, um, it may be at screening or, or enrollment, sorry, that um, that's the first time you may hear about a study. 
And at that point, it's the eligibility criteria, so it's the inclusion or exclusion criteria, which are used to determine who might be eligible for a study. And these eligibility criteria are really important um, or are an, are an important part of clinical trials to help try to de detect a treatment effect. And it's that treatment effect which is important for that treatment then to be approved uh, by the regulators. And these eligibility criteria help to define the patient population. Um, inclusion criteria specify the entry characteristics for a particular study. So that might be participant age, what the disease is, what the disease stage is. And exclusion criteria specify characteristics that disqualify a potential participant. So for example, that might be any other associated um, ocular diseases in addition to the, the disease that's being investigated. So the process of screening and enrollment um, is dependent on the individual trial design, and therefore the time that it takes will depend from study to study. Um, and sometimes it may require more than one visit, but the kinds of things that you might expect during a screening or enrollment visit um, is a vision assessment. So that could be best corrected visual acuity with a Snellen or a Logmar chart. And in some cases that may also include things like checking color vision, checking contrast sensitivity. Retinal imaging may also form part of, the, part of that uh, screening assessment. So in the top right, we've got a picture of an optical coherence tomography, an OCT image of the central retina, and that's an imaging modality that lets us look at the different la layers of the retina. And in the bottom right, we've got a blue light fundus autofluorescence image, and that type of imaging gives us information about the retinal pigment epithelium in the retina. Peripheral vision testing, such so as visual field testing, may also be required, and in some instances, electrophysiology testing may be required. So all phase three clinical trials need a control. And a control is a trial participant who doesn't receive the drug or the treatment that's being investigated, but receives standard of care or a placebo. And a placebo is a substance that has no therapeutic effect. So for example, if a trial was investigating a treatment that was given via a tablet, a placebo might be a tablet that looks, feels, and tastes exactly the same, but has no treatment effect. The reason this is really important is because it's used to establish a cause and effect relationship with the treatment and helps to isolate the effect of the treatment. So without the control, you wouldn't necessarily be able to say that it's the treatment that's actually caused, for example, an improvement in vision, and that's where the control is helpful and needed. So going on to the endpoints or, or measures that a trial might look at. So functional measures include things like checking visual acuity, uh, visual field testing, color vision testing, contrast sensitivity, or microperimetry. Microperimetry is a, a form of uh, visual field testing, but concentrating on the central retina um, to check function, or possibly even a mobility course to check um, fun how functional vision changes. Objective measures may include different forms of retinal imaging, so optical coherence tomography or OCT, uh, fundus autofluorescence, retinal photography or high-resolution retinal imaging, um, and in some instances, electrophysiology. Patient reported outcome measures may also form part of uh, a particular endpoint in a trial, um, and usually these are through uh, validated questionnaires. And in some instances, if uh, participants or patients have been involved in the trial design, there may be some specific outcomes that that patient group has identified as being important. So that might be reading vision, um, or in some instances, things like driving vision. So as a potential participant, um, it will depend slightly on the, on the specific trial that you're thinking about, but you're going to have to consider what the potential benefits might be as well as the risks. So some of the potential benefits of being involved in a clinical trial may be early access to a potential new treatment. And this may be a treatment that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get access to unless you were taking part in that trial. Um, 
for some people, it may be helpful to know that you, you're, you may be advancing knowledge within that specific field. And even for some participants, although a trial may not be able to give you a direct benefit, um, but knowing that you're potentially helping others in the future um, is beneficial. For some people, again, it may help you to play a more active role uh, within your healthcare. Some trials, depending on the trial, may involve more frequent follow-up. Um, and in certain instances, that may also mean more time with the clinical or research team. But with all uh, trials, there are always risks to consider as well. And one of the risks is that the treatment may not work. Um, and some treatments may be associated with certain side effects or risks that need to be considered. There's always the possibility that you may be allocated to the control group. Um, and finally, the time commitment um, and the potential inconvenience that that may pose to you that could be through follow-up visits or the treatment itself. So going on to talk um, about some more sort of real-world outcomes. So the pivotal phase three clinical trial for Luxterna, which we talked about before, uh, which was the first approved ocular gene therapy, um, showed that it was able to improve functional vision in patients with RPE 65 mediated inherited retinal dystrophy. Um, and that was a condition that was previously untreatable. And sort of since then, um, there's been a number of planned or ongoing treatment trials in different inherited diseases at different phases. Of the gene therapy trials um, uh, are ongoing, as I said, at various phases and in various conditions, including, but not limited to, ABCA4-related retinopathies, so Stargardt disease, uh, choroideremia, um, achromatopsia, and different forms of retinitis pigmentosa, such as X-linked retinitis pigmentosa or RP related to Usher syndrome. There are also stem cell therapy trials um, ongoing in early phases, um, and again, in uh, conditions such as Stargardt disease or retinitis pigmentosa. And one example there is a study that's been conducted by JSite, uh, a pharmaceutical company, which is looking at, uh, or performed an early phase study looking at the safety and, and um, effectiveness of intravitreal treatment with human retinal progenitor cells in adult patients with retinitis pigmentosa. And finally, um, there are some early phase studies in optogenetic therapies as well. Um, so optogenetics is a technique that uses genes which encode for a light-sensitive protein and introduces them um, into retinal ganglion cells. Um, and these genes enable um, sort of healthy and preserve retinal ganglion cells um, to be able to detect light. And the benefits of that particular technique are it, it's not related to the underlying genetic change um, that leads to photoreceptor degeneration. So it's important to remember that these trials are experiments and not all trials are necessarily going to meet their primary endpoints. So I'll sort of mention briefly about three examples here. So Biogen or Nightstar Therapeutics, which are again commercial companies, um, were <coughs> undertaking two studies, one called Sirius um, in X-linked retinitis pigmentosa and one called STAR in choroideremia. And these were both studies that um, failed to meet their primary endpoints. And another trial, which we'll hear a bit uh, about later on was Reneuron, which was an early phase study uh, or and also a first in human using human retinal pro Okay, sure, yeah. That's right. Um, so Reneuron um, was an early phase study um, and a first in human, um, looking at using human retinal progenitor cells uh, in patients with retinitis pigmentosa. So just because trials don't necessarily meet their endpoints, 
doesn't mean that they were a waste of time. These trials will help to drive learning and innovation in things like treatment delivery. So for example, um, a few years ago, um, they, in Oxford, in fact, uh, Professor McLaren was the first, or performed the first surgery in a human using a robot, uh, first eye surgery in a human using a robot. And some of that work was driven by the work that he did in gene therapy. So when uh, medication is injected underneath the retina, um, you essentially need to hold a very, very small instrument very, very still for a period of time. And stiller than a human hand is able to, because you get movements, for example, related to heartbeats. But that kind of work has led to innovation in developing um, robotics and, and, and trying to integrate that within um, eye surgery and delivery of those treatments. Um, another example in treatment delivery is um, related to, to stem cells. And while it was initially thought that the biology of actually creating new cells was going to be the difficult part, um, it's now the case of actually trying to get those cells into the eye, which is proving to be more difficult. And it, um, sort of trials will also help to innovate in outcome measures. So on the top right um, is an image um, taken with an adaptive optics scanning laser ophthalmoscope, or AOSLO. Um, and what you're able to see there is individual photoreceptors, so cone photoreceptors or light-sensing light cells at the back of a living human eye. Um, and potentially more sensitive um, uh, imaging modalities or outcome measures may also be useful um, in studies in the future. And finally, where approaches haven't worked, um, not only will it lead to innovation in trying to work out what went wrong, but also it helps to point researchers if there's a particular approach that doesn't work, um, sort of moving their energy and focus into uh, looking at different ways uh, to, to conduct uh, clinical trials. So, uh, that's everything that I had to cover uh, as part of my presentation. Uh, and I also just wanted to thank the eye research group uh, Oxford, who's a clinical research group at the Oxford Eye Hospital, led by Professor Susan Downs. But there'll be time later on for any specific questions as well. Thank you. overview and the whiz through the clinical trials process. Um, Ms. Hull's going to stay um, with me on the platform. My name is Kate Arkell. I'm the Research Development Manager at Retina UK. And I'm also very pleased to invite up to join me um, Matthias Segovia, who is a research nurse at Oxford uh, Eye Hospital, and also David Bureau, who has taken part in a clinical trial and is living with RP. So um, if you'd both like to uh, come and join me now and take a seat, and we're just going to have a... Um, so we're just going to have um, a bit of a chat about the clinical trials process and what it's really like to take part because um, I really wanted everybody um, listening today to get a feel for life at the coalface of a clinical trial um, and especially, of course, what it's like to take part. Um, clinical trials and progress in research simply can't happen without the involvement of those living with inherited sight loss. Um, and there may be some of you in the audience today who are potentially part of the future of research. So David, firstly, tell us which trial you were involved in. So I was on that phase two, I think, the phase two, uh, phase two renew on uh, stem cell research. So I had stem cells put in the back of my eyes, in my retina. I'm, I'm actually looking at Mittal there to uh, confirm that was the... Yeah, I was going to say, Mittal, <laughs> I'm going to 
Tell us a little bit more about the rationale behind the Renewron trial and, and what the treatment was. Yeah, so the Renewron trial was um, an earlier phase study uh, looking at injecting human retinal progenitor cells um, essentially underneath the retina. And the idea there being um, in conditions um, where the retinal pigment epithelium, um, so the best way I like to describe that, if you think of like an old style camera where you've got the lens in the front and the film at the back. Retinal pigment epithelium is a bit like, if you remember in the old cameras, there's a bit of black cloth just behind where the film sits. So if the film is like the retina, the black cloth is like the retinal pigment epithelium. And in the eye, that retinal pigment epithelium is a really important part of keeping the overlying retina healthy and working. Um, and in conditions where you have um, damage or where the retinal pigment epithelium has died away, the overlying retina is going to degenerate over time. So the idea of the study was, by injecting um, these stem cells um, underneath the retina. The idea was trying to see if you could get that retinal pigment epithelium um, to stop degenerating. David, had you imagined one day taking part in a clinical trial, or was it something you just dismissed as unlikely? Yeah, no, I, I um, always wanted to. I, you know, I didn't think it, it, was, it was actually gonna happen. Um, uh, I was always up for doing it, you know, not, ne not necessarily for my life improvement, but, but, but to help for the uh, future um, treatment and research of people. Then how did you first find out about the possibility of taking part in this trial? So I was phoned by Anna um, from, from Oxford Eye, Eye Hospital. Uh, she phoned me up and, and asked and explained what the treatment was, explained that I had been identified as someone who, 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 who could possibly um, actually take part in, in our trial, um, and she asked if I was willing to actually do it. Do you know, or perhaps Matthias can explain, how Anna would have identified David? Yes. Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm quite interested to know, and I think people are interested to know, how easy it is to recruit for trials, and are you perhaps overwhelmed with participants, or do you struggle to find participants? So it really depends on the study. Um, some studies are for very rare genetic conditions, um, so the pool of participants available and willing to take part is very small. Um, but we usually um, see patients in clinic, they express their interest in research, um, and we put them down in our uh, site register. So when we have a new trial coming on, um, we go through that site register, and we actually contact all the patients that might be suitable to take part. Okay. So if people listening today are very keen to take part in a future trial, what's the best way for them to put themselves on the radar, sure. as it were? So the best way, I would say, is speak with your ophthalmologist, uh, express your interest in research, and say that you would like uh, to take part in any trials available in your sites. Um, you can always contact us. We are the Eye Research Group Oxford. There we have a website in which you can express your interest. You can see all the trials that we're running. And we are always more than happy to be contacted and discussed. But yes, uh, I think it's easier and more convenient for you to um, be part of trials closer to your mm. house. Yeah, and Oxford obviously isn't the only centre at which trials run. Um, it will just depend on the trial. So, but just quickly, can people register 
their interests with you, even if they're not an Oxford patient? Definitely, okay. yes. Okay, so that probably applies to other centres as well, but do speak to your ophthalmologist. Um, David, what were your first thoughts when you were initially approached? I was actually quite quite excited uh, about doing it. I I actually joked I was um order, I was ordering a new car, uh, thinking that it would it would solve all our problems. Um, but um I yeah I I was just really keen to kind of be 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 involved. Um, you know my eyesight uh, my right eye is not great, so I was explained about the risks and all the benefit and and the potential benefits. Um, but I was just keen to kind of be involved. So what was the next step in the process after you first had that initial contact from Anna? So the next step was to, um, I had to do a lot of screening tests, um, as Mitchell explained. Um, I think there was like three or four full days of screening, okay. and it was just repeating the tests over certain days, just, just to kind of make sure that I did meet all, all of the criteria. Okay, did that surprise you, that length of, of time that that screening took? Um, I was actually warned that that it would it would it would take it would it would actually take that amount of time. So I was you know I I'd had all the information from Oxford. I was I was pre warned about what what would be needed, how much time I would I would need off work. Uh, I was quite kind of prepared for it. Okay, I was just going to ask you, Matthias. There there is quite a lot involved in screening. How do you manage that for patients? How do you can you do anything to try and make that process yeah. a bit easier? So, um, there's a lot of planning behind on all, on all these visits. Uh, as Michal was explaining, actually the study protocol states uh, all the little things that we need to do on each visit. So we have pretty clear instructions and how to follow them. Um, so we need to ad adhere to those instructions. So we plan minute by minute what we're going to do on the day. Of course, there's always delays, um, but we try to um, stick to our plans. Um, there's a lot of assessments that need to be carried out just to make sure that the patient being assessed is the right one for that trial. Um, so um, the trial can um, recruit more participants and meet their endpoints, so to speak. Yeah. Did you have lots of questions before you got going? So I had, I had lots of information. Um, it, it was a constant frustration from Anna's team uh, that I didn't really ask many questions to be honest. All the, all the information was given to me. Uh, we did some research online about what the company was, what the process was. So I was quite com comfortable with. Um, yeah. yeah Matthias, have you got any tips for people on how to approach the participant information? Because they're given quite a lot of information, aren't they, at the start of? It's quite daunting sometimes. There are a lot of pages uh, with a lot of information. Um, so what we always tell uh, our possible candidates is to go through it calmly, with time, take your time to read it, um, mark it, write on it, uh, discuss it with friends, with relatives, uh, to have different points of view. So um, it's not only your own worrying and uh, own thoughts, you can always find other uh, points of views in other people. Um, and yes, always contact us. Uh, we're always available to answer questions. If we don't know the answers, we are more than comfortable to tell you. We'll come back to you later. But yes, take your 
on time and we will never pressure you to give us an answer yeah i was going to say do you mind how long people take no, i mean obviously not. within reason yes <laughs> yes uh, please do not take three or four months that's i mean if you have to that's fine um, and if there is a time constraint uh, if the recruitment of the study is going to end soon we're definitely going to let you know so you know that um you have to take your time but not too much okay David, how long after that lengthy screening process was it before you found out that you were definitely going to be enrolled? Can you I, th remember? I think it was quite, it was actually pretty fast, I think. I think after, after the, the last one, um, I think I was like booked in like a month later. It, okay. it, it, it was like super fast to kind, of, uh, okay. to kind of do it. Actually, Matthias, just to go back to screening, um, an important question I missed was to say, do you always need to know somebody's genetic diagnosis in inherited retinal conditions before you enroll them in a trial? Yes. So before uh, the screening visit, sometimes it is required and sometimes it is not. It depends on what the protocol states. Um, for example, in Davis' case, um, it was not required because we could do a genetic test on the screening visit. Saying that, um, genetic tests usually take a long time uh, for us to get the results, so it might be a longer period uh, of screening, but still depends on the study. Yeah, okay, so that's just another reminder to bear genetic testing in mind, and um, if you want more information on that, you can uh, visit Unlock Genetics, uh, our information resource, and there's some information about that next door. Um, how often do you have to turn people away? after screening? Oh, well, um, so we are very strict with our pre-screening pre process, sorry. Um, so we uh, looked at all the information that we have from previous clinic visits from the patients okay. to make sure that we're not putting the patients okay. in a long screening process yeah. without the need to, if we know that they're not going to be eligible. So we look at images that doctors took in the past um, we looked at uh, your vision levels um, in previous visits just to make sure that you fit the criteria. But, <clears throat> excuse me, there's, I cannot tell you a percentage, no. but there's always some people that get turned away from unexpected reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, David, coming back to you, it was only about a month before mm. you were booked in, but did you know ahead of time generally how much time the trial was going to require did you have to plan ahead to book time off work I, and yeah i was warned i was warned about how how much time would 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 be needed so so there, i was pre-warned about all the screening tests and then i then had to take um one or two days off to get a baseline um reading from for my eyes and then i knew the operation was a week or a week to recover mm -hmm. And then there would be periodic days where I would need to go. So I, I had my six months um, from when I was going to start the trial all planned out. Is that typical, Matthias, that, that kind of level of commitment yeah. and planning? Yes. So every clinical trial, um, it's a big commitment to take on. Um, most of all, if it's, for example, this one, a surgical trial, um, there, are, there are a lot of follow-ups just to make sure that uh, we uh, keep safety on on our mind mm -hmm. keeping safety on our mind um yeah it's very usual uh, to have a lot of visits after the the surgical procedure and then they're spreading out a bit more 
for one year or two years. Okay, so that's quite a long-term commitment, isn't it? Yeah. And David, tell us about your experience of the surgery then when you went in for the treatment and the immediate aftermath of that. Yeah, so I was, I was, um, I'd, I'd been pre-warned about all, all of the process. I was, I was, because I was going to be the first person in, in, in the UK to have this study, uh, the BBC came and filmed and I was asked if, if, if I was willing to be interviewed by Fergus Walls and, and, and have the operation filmed, which I was. Um, so the whole day uh, was actually just just a blur because as soon as I got in, uh, we did some more tests. Um, I was prepped for surgery. I was interviewed. There was all the film crew and camera crew. I had to kind of fake walking down, walking down the corridor <laughs> towards towards the operating uh, theatre. Um, and then I had the operation. You know, it was all quite smooth, all quite all quite easy. Um, and then I just went home home that evening after the anesthetic had worn off and uh, yeah I kind of had a week of lying on my on my front uh, while the air pocket uh, air bubble kind of was that, went away was that tough, it was quite hard um, I've got some images um, my wife has taken some nice photos of, of me um, lying with my head on the footstool on the sofa and my body on the sofa and reading my iPad on the on the on the floor which isn't the most appealing side I don't think <laughs> um Matthias, is it okay? Would it have been okay for David to change his mind at the very last minute? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> we're um, very, very. Um, I cannot get the word right. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> yes, thank you. Uh, we're very happy. So you're offering your time. Uh, you're offering yourself uh, to clinical research. So you're more than uh, welcome to say no at any point. And were the team at Oxford in touch with you regularly oh, when you were lying with your head looking yeah. down at your iPad? I was, getting, also... I was getting text messages, I was getting, uh, I was being, getting emails, getting kind of checks all the time. And as, and as uh, Matthias mentioned, so after, after the operation, I had, to, I had to go in four times within a two-week period just to get those checks and balances and make sure everything was okay. So I was in capable hands. Okay, so that's all part of your safety monitoring um, presumably, um, and can people call you anytime? Yes. In that, we provide telephone numbers. Uh, if they need to text us, we're happy as well. Emails, we check them constantly. We provide uh, also telephone numbers uh, for out of hours issues. So, yeah. so generally, I mean, Mittel mentioned in his talk all of the measures and, and things. How often do you um, do that sort of battery of tests? So it depends on the visit. Um, uh, usually the most heavy one are the screening and baseline visits, okay. if it's an interventional study. Um, and then uh, after the surgery, uh, we just monitor safety after the procedure, so we don't do a lot of tests. But then every so often, we have to perform everything so the sponsor or whoever is doing the study can assess um how the patient's doing so david what happened with your vision after this surgery so after the surgery the surgery i um nothing really happened to you <laughs> it was it was all of it um all of it sad um no it was so nothing really kind of significantly happened there was not this great groundbreaking wow i can see again um but i did notice a few months after the surgery that i could 
see some light out of the side of my eye, my eye which I didn't think I could see previously. And, and, and actually, when I turned around, I couldn't see it out, out of my left eye. So I had my operation on my right eye. Okay. Um, and I can still see a bit of light, which I can't see on my left side. Okay. But, but apart from that, all my, all my normal vision kind of returned to normal after, after the airport had went. Okay. And you, presumably, the Oxford team were telling you from their point of view what they were seeing on the, on the measurements. Yeah. What, what did well, what happen there? Well, there wasn't, there wasn't, again, there wasn't a groundbreaking improvement. Um, I, think, uh, I think about uh, two or three months after after the operation and after all the tests, then the actual trial was stopped because there were some issues in terms of, in terms of the safety. Uh, so, so they stopped the trial. Um, so yeah, 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 yeah. My car's uh, my car's been cancelled. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, how, how did that feel? Did you feel um, a sense of disappointment? I was, yeah, I was. If if I was, I think I I think in in my mind you build up that this is going to solve solve everything. Um, and it kind of didn't. Miss <laughs> yeah. um, Hull, can you briefly explain what ultimately happened with this particular trial? Yeah, so as David mentioned, the trial ended up being stopped early uh, because of complications, mainly that I think related to the surgical procedure, trying to get the cells underneath the retina. Um, so the company, because it was an early phase study, and as I mentioned before, so the early phase studies also there's partly looking at how well it's working, they're also looking at safety. Um, and so when they were checking, um, because it appeared that there was there were more sort of surgical complications happening, their sponsor, which was a company, decided to stop uh, the, the study early. Is there any future for that treatment? I mean, were there any positive <coughs> outcomes from that trial? I think the sort of notice that the company sent afterwards, um, the lower dose of the cells didn't appear to have the same safety issues, but potentially wasn't working as effectively as effectively as the higher dose. So for that specific bit, not so much, but there are other stem cell related trials ongoing from other companies using different approaches and things as mentioned before. Okay, and presumably just that sort of scientific learning is recorded somewhere yeah. and it's not, yeah. Um, David, what would your advice be to somebody out there today who has, might have be given the opportunity yeah. in the future to take part? I would actually grab it. I would grab it with both hands. You know, this this I this eye disease is not a nice one. It's a it's a pain in the ass. It's um, what's the worst that that can happen? <laughs> you know, really. I, you know, that's my view in life. In that, you know, it can't really get that much worse. So I would just do it. Would, I would you, just do it. Would you go through it again? Yeah. If you could. Yeah. Um, Mittel, does um, taking part in a trial? one trial exclude you from taking part in another one in the future or for a particular length of time? Um, so overall, no, um, but it will very much depend on what trial you were part of and what trial you're looking to be part of. So for example, if it was an interventional trial uh, where you've had an operation um, and the follow-up trial is, let's say, qualitative research, so trying to find out your experiences and how you have feel that the, the experience of the trial was or how your vision is afterwards, then no. Um, but if the next trial is another interventional trial, um, then potentially it may do. And each trial will have their specific inclusion-exclusion criteria. And if it's part of the new trial, it says you're not to have had surgery before or had surgery within this specific amount of time, then depending on when you had it previously, it may exclude you. Okay. 
Um, all three of you, thank you so much um, for your contributions. I think that's given us a really great insight into real-life clinical trials. Um, we'll be moving on to our main um, research Q&A session in just a moment, um, for which um, Ms. Hal and Matthias um, will be staying on the platform with me. Um, but before that, are there any questions specifically for David about his experiences? One at the back and one in the middle. Um, thank you very much for your experiences. Um, just wanted to ask you, do you think, um, personally for myself, I've got RP OSH2A. They're not doing trials at the moment. I think this is for the whole panel, but for David in particular, did you feel that this is it? Because like, hearing your story was quite inspirational and thinking, yes, you know, this disease is going to go away, like, you know, getting that car and getting back to some kind of normality, whatever that is in these days. But did you feel crushed at any point while the trials were going? Because if someone's embarking on what you've gone through and they're not successful, what advice would you give them if they were absolutely devastated that they didn't pass the initial screening? Yeah, I didn't feel crushed. I, I didn't feel crushed. I think, you know, we've, you know, you know we've got used to living this life. Um, so anything I thought would, that could, help improve or make things better uh, you know is worth a shot um if it didn't improve it then nothing has really changed you know we just carry on with 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 how we live our lives so i wasn't i wasn't kind of you know going to be crushed i wasn't expecting you know I, even though i joke about the car i i knew it wasn't going to change overnight and it's not ne necessarily about me and my life it's more about um, or, or the future. I think that was, you know, that's my outlook on life. I haven't lost hope yet. Hopefully, you know, there will be a cure for this horrible disease for all forms of RIDs, and hopefully they'll find one for every single one on that spectrum of the different X-linked, whatever you want to call it. And, yeah, not to lose hope. I mean, that's one thing I don't want to lose, is hope. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um. Hello, is this working? <clears throat> okay, so I might regret asking this question, but um, you mentioned you have RP, and um, from my understanding of RP, um, it's a progressive disease, and um, it can, I've been told it can affect people slightly differently. So I'm just curious if you don't mind sharing what your kind of situation with RP is and how it affects your vision. Yeah, I've got uh, my forward vision on my left eye is pretty good, so I can read like down to four from the bottom on, on, um, on the eye chart. Um, but I've got, I've got 9%, nine degrees of vision, I think. Um, so I, I haven't really got any, any kind of, um, any vision um, on either eyes from my side. Uh, my right eye's always been a, a weak eye, even, even when I was a child. So um, I've always had like milk, milk bottle lenses uh, on, my, on my right eye. So all the trial that I was, I was actually done was just on one eye, on, on my right eye. Um, and it was only to try and see the effect of the peripheral vision. It wasn't going to change any, 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 any of my forwards, um, my forward side, the central side. Yeah, I have one more question if that's all right. And um, I'd like to learn, know a little bit more about um, post um, your operation. 
uh, you mentioned something about having like bubble in your eye and then having to lie flat on the floor. I'd like to know a li little bit more about why that was and how it affected your vision. As part of the, as part of the operation, they had to detach my retina. And so the process for reattaching the retina is to put an air, an air bubble. I think that's what it's called, is it? An air bubble to kind of push the retina back to kind of make sure it reattaches. So for the first week, um, you've got to lie on your front to kind of help help that air bubble um, actually dissolve. Um, but when you do stand up, it looks as though, as though you're looking underwater. Um, there is, have we, have we run, okay. I think that's probably all we've got time for. Um, but if you do still have a question that you'd like to ask, um, do feel free to have a chat with David here until lunch time, yeah. I think. So um, do catch him in the break if you want to have um, a further chat. David, thank you so thank you. much for joining us and sharing your experiences. going to move to our main uh, research question and answer session um, where you can of course um, ask uh, Mittal and Matthias any more questions you have about clinical trials um, but we're also open to any other research related questions and I will uh, also be welcoming to the platform uh, two of our trustees um, Elizabeth Graham who is a uh, retired consultant ophthalmologist with a particular interest in um, uh, inflammation and the relationship between the eye and the brain, and Simon Keatley, who's a retired consultant ophthalmic surgeon. And we're also going to be joined online by another of our trustees, Professor John Marshall, um, who's conducted wide-ranging eye research over the course of his career. Um, if you could just give us a couple of minutes while we do some stage adjusting and uh, microphone logistics, that would be wonderful.
much, everybody, for bearing um, with us. Um, so we're now joined on the screen by uh, John Marshall. So um, Liz, uh, Simon, and John, would you just each like to briefly introduce yourself, say a little bit more about yourselves? Hello, I'm Liz Graham. I'm a retired consultant ophthalmologist, primarily from St. Thomas's in London, and I also worked at the National Hospital for Queen Square and Great Ormond Street because my primary interest is inflammation of the eye and also of the brain. So the main thing I did was look after patients who had something wrong with their eyes, which reflected something that was wrong with their body. So the treatment of it was often drugs as well as surgery, as opposed to just surgery. Um, and I've had a, quite a lot to do with clinical trials in my time, not primarily of retinal degeneration, but of how the inflammation affects the retina. And I retired first in 2014, and then I work, went back to Great Ormond Street and worked for another three years. Hi, hello everybody. I'm Simon Keatley. Um, I am nothing like as eminent as my two colleagues, John and Liz. Um, I'm very much a jobbing ophthalmologist. Uh, worked in a district general hospital in Basingstoke um, for the past 40 years, uh, and I retired about three years ago. So I really am uh, probably what you lot may see every time you go to a clinic. It's a, it's a, a busy outpatient's clinic. Um, and uh, ophthalmology uh, is, is, is getting increasingly busy, really. So I was doing uh, cataract surgery, uh, dealing a, a, a little bit with retinal, inherited retinal diseases, but of course, as you, as you know, these are quite rare, so we didn't see that many. Um, I've done a few clinical trials, mainly in um, um, uh, driving, in fact. I was quite interested in uh, uh, the eye and driving. Uh, so uh, I was on the, uh, uh, the government uh, um, advisory panel on, on vision and driving. Uh, and since I've retired, um, I still keep my brain going a little bit by uh, doing some examining for um, trainee eye doctors. Uh, which is actually very interesting, uh, and uh, composing questions. And since I've been a trustee of uh, Retina UK, I've actually learnt quite a lot uh, and actually produced quite a few uh, questions on retinal, uh, inherited retinal diseases, which is really, really important, I think, to train these young uh, eye doctors uh, to know a little bit about this uh, very rare, uh, these rare diseases. So that's me. Thank you very much, both of you. And John, I'm looking at the screen. I don't know actually where John is looking, but uh, John, would you just quickly like to uh, give us a quick introduction? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I'm John Marshall. I guess I was there right from the very beginning of the foundation of what was the British Retinitis Pigmentosa Society and have seen its uh, development over the uh, years. Um, People think I'm the Heinz Professor of Ophthalmology, 57 varieties. They're never quite sure what I'm working on. Um, I invented the laser treatment for short-sightedness and long-sightedness that you see all the publicity um, on. <clears throat> I'm currently back at the Institute of Ophthalmology, um, but I have a profound interest in genetic eye disease and again, co-founded a, a company in San Francisco, which originally was going to um, concentrate on detecting very rare conditions at the front of the eye. 
But then COVID intervened and having PCR and lateral flow and all the techniques we required, we immediately switched to COVID screening, which produced a lot of money, which we found available for working on gene therapy. And at the front of the eye, it, we are now in the process of applying for permission to do a trial of gene therapy using drops. So this will be gene therapy without surgery, and it isn't going to affect the gene itself, but it's going to interfere with the signal between a defective gene and the manufacturing processes in the cell. So by switching off that message, we will effectively treat the disease. And in early uh, stages of uh, experimentation, in lots of animals that have similar conditions, we've been very successful in being able to switch off a defective gene. So this is particularly relevant for autosomal dominant diseases. The ones that occur in families, generation to generation, regardless of sex. So I guess over the last 50 years, I've had a very interesting time. I, I really call it around the globe in 50 years, but it's around the globe of the eye as well as uh, around the globe of the earth. Thank you very much, John. So um, can we uh, move over to you guys and everybody at home to uh, submit their questions? So if you're in the room, do stick your hand up and somebody will bring you a microphone. If you're at home, please use the question and answer box in Zoom. So we've got a couple of the back and also a lady here. Um, Hi, my name's Sarah. Um, I was told when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed from a small, well, from a baby, really. I've actually got retinitis pigmentosus, labors amaurosis, optic atrophy, Usher's type 2. Try saying that when you're drunk. <laughs> um, I, actually, I actually lost my sight due to the um, optic atrophy. I can see light, dark, and shadows but I've got no idea whatsoever what the shadow is. Um, is there any genetic research that can actually help? And I was told it was one in 10 million to have all three together. The eye hospital in Birmingham hasn't even got any information on all three together. So okay, I was just asking so... the professor, because he seems to be the one who... <laughs> okay. I mean, Mittal, have you ever come across that combination of you know multiple um, underlying genetic uh, conditions at all not like that um, so I mean I know in some people with quite severe end-stage degeneration um, that can sort of appear affect the appearance of the nerve at the back of the eye but uh, not in that sort of way with three separate um, things going on at the same time um, should we put that to John um, you were saying that it was the optic atrophy that you've been told is actually responsible. Well, I, I guess Liz would also have some comments on this, but in reality, in, in, many years ago, there was a lot of miss or confused diagnosis of various inherited retinal dystrophies. And it's only really with the advent of genetic screening 
that we can be absolutely specific to say you have got the following problems. So I'm not sure whether your original diagnosis was an accurate diagnosis, but the fact that you have had uh, problems with the optic nerve is probably the, the um, causal element that's caused your vision to go so dramatically. But Liz is the real expert on the eye and the brain. Um, my optic nerves completely atrophied, but the RP diagnosis was retinal atrophy. Um, I was diagnosed from birth, but I didn't actually lose my sight to the level it is now till I was in my late 30s. Um, it got to the point where I couldn't see faces on the TVs. It was all like a blurry screen. Um, and I'm in constant pain with my back of my head. And I've also um, developed um, Charles Bonnet syndrome because I can't, my brain's trying to see something it can't. So that keeps me awake 24 seven. I think I get about eight hours sleep a week because I've constantly, when I'm trying to go to sleep, it's constant like a white fog. Yes. The, the room is white. And, the, and, and, and then I've got like the vertical blind and the black shadows and the flashing lights whether my eyes are awake or closed, I can't get rid of it. Liz, do you want to say something about Charles Bonnet syndrome as that's come up? Have you got any comments on that? Um, do people in the room understand the word of Charles Bonnet, which is a syndrome that's associated with very poor vision of any cause? So it can be due to people who have very poor optic nerve function or people with very severe macular function and basically it happens because the brain and the area of the brain that normally sees when all the pathways are working is still trying to work but it doesn't have the engineering to do that because the optic nerve isn't working and consequently it sort of goes into overdrive and shows people lots of different forms they're usually colored and they can be very vivid they can be people in funny clothes they can be horses or they can be ghastly zigzags like you're describing and it's very very debilitating it's just awful and it is unfortunately very difficult to treat normally with time things ameliorate and do get better and there are a few specialists in the country who deal with it a lot and I'm sure you've probably seen one or two of them never. never well there are your local ophthalmologist would know people and there are there is I think there's an association isn't there for Charles Bonnet which can be quite helpful next door um they are it's Esme's umbrella um they are with us today and also uh for any of you who are interested in this or experiencing it we do have a webinar uh, available on our website, which is uh, an, an hour of, of talking about Charles Bonnet syndrome. Uh, Dominic Fitch um, did that for us, and he's a leading expert. So uh, have a look at that if you would like to. Um, we've got some a question at the back from the online uh, participants. Um, so this was a, a question by email. Uh, my 20-year-old daughter with RP has been refused a provisional driving license because her provisional vision is borderline on the test required by the DVLA. 
Is there anything that can be done to improve peripheral vision? Simon, do you want to? Thank you. Um, yes, this is always a, an issue. Um, and retinitis pigmentosa obviously um, reduces your peripheral um, vision. Uh, and David described that really rather well um, to you um, already. Um, but gradually it can just um, move in. So you're looking through, effectively looking through a, a small tunnel. Um, the DVLA, the Driving Licence Authority, um, have specific um, regulations for driving, um, quite rightly in my view. Um, and uh, that really stipulates that with both eyes open, you have to have about 120 degrees on the, well, not about, an exact, exactly 120 degrees on the horizontal, which is about that, um, which, is a, which is slightly, um, uh, slightly less than one eye. So you can drive a car with one, one normal eye, um, but if you don't have um, 120 degrees on the horizontal, then that debars you from a provisional and a full license. Um, in addition, you can't have any significant spots in your central vision for driving. Uh, so if you've got little, uh, little areas of blind, blind spots in the middle uh, within 20 degrees, then that also debars you, sadly. Um, and it is very frustrating for people with retinitis pigmentosa, which often starts relatively mildly. Um, and uh, youngsters, you know, sometimes don't know they've got a problem apart from difficulty in the dark, for instance. Um, but often their visual fields are sadly not enough to drive. I hope that answers the question. Okay, thank you very much. Um... Sorry, I didn't quite understand what Matt was <laughs> trying to say to me there. Clearly, Matt and I need to do some sign language training before. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got a question. Uh, you mentioned before about uh, stem cell therapies. Um, so where do they come from? Are they from the patient themselves or are they from a third party? Miss Al, can you explain a little bit more about the retinal progenitor cells? And yeah, so I'll just talk about stem cells in general um, rather than specific trials because different trials will potentially get from different places. Um, but I suppose in an umbrella way of looking at it, there's three sort of sources. One is embryonic stem cells, what's called embryonic stem cells, and they come from a blastocyst. So that's sort of, um, sort of a group of sort of five cells, and when you take one of those, they are immortal, so they will kind of keep producing um, more cells. You can get what we call induced pluripotent stem cells. So that's where you would take, for example, a skin cell from an adult, uh, let's say my skin cell, um, you do certain things in the lab, you take it back to a, uh, essentially, again, a pluripotent stem cell, which is um, a cell that can turn into anything and live forever. And then from there, you then go forward to create it into whatever it is that you uh, want to create it into. And the final one is what we call adult stem cells. So you may have heard of it, things like in bone marrow, there are certain cells within sort of fat or adipose tissue. Um, so these are cells that are sort of there from when you were a baby that still have that ability to, to to keep producing sort of other cells and um, in certain studies, some people in the past I think have looked at sort of transplanting those across as well. So I think um, the cells that have been, are in clinical trial already and the cells are proprietary preparations of cells that have been grown up. We don't and, um, necessarily know the details, but they are sort of commercially developed cell lines um, that have been, that are cultured and developed. I don't know if, Either of you know any, anybody knows any more about that? But 
John, do you know yet? Hi. <laughs> Basically, um, there is a bit of a misconception with stem cells in that current treatment regimes have rather concentrated on the pigment epithelium. Now, the pigment epithelium is the layer behind the retina, and that is a, label, a layer that is capable of cell division. So those cells can actually replace themselves in situ. And the reason they don't normally is because they are so locked together. It's called contact inhibition. But if you release them from contact inhibition, those cells are capable of dividing and recoating an area. The area of most interest is unfortunately the area of less research, and that is the area of light-sensitive cells, because those are cells which are formed early in embryogenesis but cannot divide, like most of the nervous system. And those are the cells whose loss deprives our patients of vision. Uh, it is quite difficult to, first of all, produce those cells in a viable form, and secondly, to get them in the eye and then to connect up in the ways that they should. So that is an interesting area for stem cell research, which unfortunately at the moment isn't moving as quickly as we would like. There's some great work going on in France, but it's not moving as quickly as, as the rest of us would like. The other issue here is that in a retinal degeneration, the rod cells tend to die completely if they're insulted. And the rods, strangely enough, are the specialist cells. They are late developments in evolution. The cone cells are very primitive cells. And when you harm a cone cell, it loses its light-sensitive portion, so you can't see. But the rest of the cell and all its connections are still there. So there's another school of thought, again initiated in France, but now very powerful in the US, where people are trying to activate so-called clock genes to switch on manufacturing of the bits that go missing. So if you've got a cone cell there that can't see anything because it's lost its light sensitive portion, the idea is, well, during embryogenesis, it grew one of those, so if we can activate those genes that were active way back then, it can grow another one. And there are some quite interesting results in, uh, so far in animal um, studies. So it's not true stem cells, but it's a better understanding of the cell biology and a faster push towards potential therapeutic intervention. Thank you very much, John. Um, we've got one more question, and then I think we'll be, oh, a couple more, and then we'll be uh, running out of time. So. I'm, I'm Di Diane, I've got classic RP, I've, I've still got my central vision, it's, it's, um, my peripheral vision is going very slowly. My question is actually quite a general one based on the, the last session. Um, Kate, you said there are lots of different research organisations in the country. The general question is, how joined up are you? The, the specific question is, I'm on Moorfield's list 
for research. Do I then, do I have to apply to all these different organisations to get on their lists? Yes, Matthias, do you want to comment on that? So you wouldn't, for example, be able to see details at Moorfields if you had a clinical trial underway at Oxford that didn't involve Moorfields, you would be unable to see. Sadly, uh, there's no... Um made connection between different research organizations so if you would like to uh, be part of a study that's being carried out in another site apart from Moorfields you will need to get in touch with the team and we'll definitely come back to you. But I think the consultant ophthalmologists who do research in a particular subject are very joined up so that if they're starting a trial and they're looking for patients they will speak to all their colleagues who deal with that sort of disease and say what we're looking for is RP with a certain field defect, a certain age, a certain sex, etc. And this is what we need to really test this new treatment. And so they they are joined up from that point of view. And they're only they want as many appropriate patients because one of the secrets of clinical trials is having a very pure entrance criteria in the way of group of patients so you know exactly what you're studying and you don't muddy the waters with people who don't quite fulfill the criteria so the ophthalmologists are very joined up thank you liz that's i think that's a really good point to make um at the back there oh and actually there's a, okay sorry i think somebody's got a no simon i think behind you and there's a Lady. Hi, I've got one from online, if I may. Okay. Um, I have two defective genes, USH2A and RPGR. My consultant has advised me that my retinas are too thin for the current treatment trial for USH2A. My wife read an article on RP research and potential treatment page on social media about a month ago, whereby mini retinas were grown in a Petri dish and that this procedure made it easier for stem cells to reproduce into photoreceptor cells. I have not been able to find this information on this page since. As I and many others in the community have light perception or less, this research sorry, could be of benefit. Could you advise whether this information is true? And if so, would it restore central vision? Thank you. Um, John, I think, yes. <laughs> But two, two things, I'd also like to sort of follow on from the last question, and that is that Retina UK has organised an integrated team of research workers, of um, those carrying out um, genetic studies and trials, etc. So Retina UK has also made a major contribution to interaction between groups. Um, in relation to this specific question, yes, these things are called retinoids, and uh, this started in Japan. And uh, strangely enough, you can grow um, models of the retina because in, in the retinoids, you, you have a three-dimensional structure as opposed to conventional tissue culture in which the cells are just flat on the base of a Petri dish. So these retinoids enable you not only to look at differentiation of one set of cells but a whole group of cells and how they make their connections um, i have to say that covid 
interfered with some of the research work going on at uh, University College London, where a number of these were lost because of restricted access to the buildings. But this is an extremely impressive area of research and one that's moving very, very quickly. But again, we need to bear in mind what cells do we really need to replace and what cells could we actually retrieve? Uh, and again, a very exciting area of research. But there is a literature, there are lots of publications, and uh, I guess that if this particular individual is very interested, if she writes in to Tina, then we will facilitate you with some of the technical references. Thank you very much, John. I think we've got time for one more. And there's a lady in, um, if one of my colleagues could bring a microphone here, because this lady's been waiting very patiently all along. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in uh, Dr. Shah's very clear and comprehensive talk, he mentioned one of the side effects of research being progression in other areas of knowledge. And um, for example, retinal imaging. And so this is a question about imaging and investigations. At the moment, those of us with degenerative retinal diseases tend to um, go along, have our imaging, our investigations in a serial manner. And we're told, well, from an ob objective point of view, this is how much things have changed over the last year, for example. And I want to ask the panel if you envisage in the future a situation where the imaging, the investigations we have, may be looking at uh, metabolism or phagocytosis, um, can actually tell us, actually, this is what we predict to change for you, objectively speaking, within the next three months, six months, if that makes sense. Mittal. So I think that's the long-term goal. Um, I think going down to that sort of cellular level of imaging you were talking about, um, so I showed that photo towards the end of an image uh, from an adaptive optic scanning laser ophthalmoscope. So that's the one where it actually allows you to see individual cells in the living eye. Um, so that's something that is essentially taking some technology that's used in astronomy to look at stars and applying it to retinal imaging. And that's the highest resolution at the moment, anyway, that we're able to get. Um, and on that image, you're able to see the cone uh, photoreceptor. So these are the, the, the ones that are mainly in the central retina. And labs around the world that are working on it are now able to improve, improve that resolution to see the rod photoreceptors, uh, the ones that are more in the peripheral vision. But not quite yet at seeing anything more than that. And bear in mind that these cells are small, very, very small. So we're talking two microns. Um, and so that's kind of where we are with that. But it's not at a state where you're going to, for example, see it in your routine clinic when you go to see your ophthalmologist next. It's still very much more, I think, a research instrument at the moment. Um, but you're right. I, mean, I think ultimately the idea is if we're able to use these new technologies and even existing technologies to image patients over time, so it goes back to that natural history, um, look at using observational data, and then from that data trying to predict, okay, what are the features actually that are telling us that there are signs of progression. Um, so we can then use that at, at a new visit to say, oh, look, we've seen feature X, Y, and Z, and that tells us based on the information we have that you may be progressing in the next one year, two years, and things like that. And also it may be useful for future trials as well. Um, <clears throat> at the moment, we're, we're, we're using imaging, we're using functional measures over time, uh, which means that sometimes these trials need to be long for us to say, is this treatment actually gonna work or not? Um, and that sort of prolonged period of the trial is, is adding to the cost. And if we're actually able to say quite convincingly, this imaging feature alone is enough to tell us 
quite accurately that um, we're preserving the vision or you're going to get vision back here, then potentially in the future, that may mean that trials can be shorter, potentially cheaper as well. Thank you very much. I think um, we have run out. So um, thank you all very much for your uh, questions, but thank you especially to our panel and um, John, who we can't see at the moment, um, for um, taking those questions. Um, Matt, do you have a... Yes, thank you ever so much for everyone who joined us on the panel. So now it's time for your first break. Um, so please do go around, see the exhibitors, get yourself a coffee, a bit of cake, tea, um, and we will resume back in here at five past 12 for our second session. Thank you very much. Um, so no matter your thoughts on technology, um, and you'll see what we mean when we come to do this session, because the technology is not working for us today. Um, you can't deny it forms a massive, massive part of our lives. Um, and it's becoming increasingly so with members of our community. Uh, our latest survey showed an upsurge of 21% of respondents uh, making use of um, Alexa-style smart speakers um, or smart home devices, and 53% um, using smartphones and um, things with accessibility features. So that's a, ma a massive increase from our, our first survey. Uh, we also know that a good percentage of our community wants to know more about technology, which is why we've asked Davinda Kular from um, the RNB Technology for Today's team, that's uh, why Technology for Life team. Um, <laughs> you can be today. Uh, and we also have some of his colleagues um, from the team in the exhibition hall. So for any of your technology needs, you can speak to Davinda or your colleagues um, who are in the room with us as well. Um, so, for this next session, Davinda, come on DJ. up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Thank you, Mike says, can I, can I just gonna keep this all interactive? Can I get a single clap if you can hear me okay? Oh, you sound gorgeous, beautiful. Okay, so I'm just, for myself, a bit of an introduction. Uh, I'll try my best to speak slowly for the interpreters. Apologies, I do talk quickly. Don't worry if it's too quick. Um, so, as Matt kindly said, friend of Retina UK and vice versa, feeling is mutual. Um, I have RP myself, so I've gone through the spectrum of sight loss. And I want to keep today's talk pretty interactive, uh, pretty light touch, but also really informative. So it's going to be a lot about principles, where we are with tech, the value it adds to our lives, and how it can move forward. Uh, Matt touched on a couple of great colleagues I've got in the room. Uh, first, uh, I've got my colleagues here who are Colin Shales and Dave Williams. And they'll also be talking at some point as well. And I've also got my uh, glamorous assistant who is an echo, but for this session is a techlo. <laughs> so, what we're going to start with was, I thought I'd frame this in a way for you to say, well, there's a lot of talk about, we have talked about medical model, social model, I think a lot of people have heard these terms. And I like to think about it in this way that it's great, the medical stuff that's going on. It's, I'm one of these practical chaps that says, 
it's great what's happening in, the, in that side of the field, but what's happening with technology, what everyday life is about, is the skills and the adaptations and the changes we all need to do to, to live and contribute and live good lives. And that's what it's about. So the social model, if you've not come across it, just a quick overview, is an example I'll use away from sight loss. Let's imagine someone's had an injury. Let's say it's a spinal cord injury. I'm sure most of you know that once they've done their medical treatment, what's the first mobility aid somebody with no longer functional legs is given? Anyone want to shout out? Wheelchair. Fantastic. Yeah. So that person is going out in the environment in their wheelchair, happily getting around where they want to be. And let's say one day they want to go to a library, you know, thirst for knowledge. They get to that library and they're faced with a set of stairs. It's at that point that they are disabled, not because of them as an individual, but the environment has got a barrier in front of them. So if that's the barrier, I'm a very problem solution kind of guy. What's the solution? Exactly. So someone's kind of said ramp. Now, what I'm going to talk about from technology standpoint is we have a ramp as well, and that's our accessibility. And that's what I'm going to be talking about in every situation of our lives. If you come across a barrier, think about what's my ramp? What's my solution? Because every one of us has an objective, you know, it could be anything. And, you know, we'll come across a situation where we think we have to be creative. I'm sure all of you know this. We're pretty tenacious. I'm a stubborn guy. You know, we've got to get things done. Right. So technology has become a real asset and a tool. I think Matt, Tina, yesterday mentioned about they seem to be more of a, an aid for us as well. It's like I call my smartphone the Swiss Army knife of tools. It's as many tools and skills as you've got in the box. So in terms of technology, it can be basic tech. I'm sure some of you may know about bump on stickers. You know, they could be a little bit of a tech. Uh, anyone use a liquid lever indicator? Give me a clap if you do. Oh, okay, interesting. Not so many. Okay, so give me a clap if you do use a form of technology. So that's interesting. Okay, so that was a bit of a Mexican wave of a clap, that was. Um, so, and for those online, apologies, do clap as well, but I can't hear you, sorry. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those situations. It's, tech has moved on so much, just like some, for us, some of sight loss has moved on so much with progressive conditions. So I'm going to talk about inclusive tech built in. And that's not to say that specialist solutions from some of the providers that we have out in the market, I totally respect what they do. But I'm sure some of you come across, maybe if you've had recent diagnosis, or if you've had sight loss for a long time, or if you've been registered blind or born blind, all through that whole spectrum, there's going to be somebody that says, this is the best thing. This is the one you want. Don't go for that. Um, but the thing is, what I say to everyone I teach and train is what's right for you. Make sure you get hands on with what your objectives are. Be, be aware about what you want to achieve, and all of these tools have a ramp. So let's start with Microsoft, just going to do principles. First thing I'm going to do is frame it with this in mind. When I teach people, think in your mind of a triangle, and at the top is sight, and on the other corner is sound, and on the other corner is touch. Okay, all of those three senses, I'm not really going to be doing smell and taste. I don't think tech appreciates that, so <laughs> let's stick with those three. What about, so if we start to say, a spectral sight. Sight starts to get taken away. What are we left with? Sound and touch. Yeah. So let's go with the sight. And what my techlo is going to do, if uh, Maestro, you, if you could just confirm, is the Windows computer? There we go. The magical tech. It's there. This is a standard Windows desktop for most people. But when, for myself, as I was going for magnification, for example, is what I'm going to be talking about. That's my first ramp. I was thinking, 
I cannot see that. But I'm not sure if some of you also know that there's one other thing that starts to affect a lot of people, and that is photophobia or glare. Give me a clap if you ever get sensitive to light. Okay. So, given that, now Tekla, if we could, the first thing I would like to do as an adaptation to my glare issue is three keys, which is Alt, Shift, Print, Screen. And this isn't going to be a training session. Don't have to remember all this, but that's just so you're aware of what I'm doing. Alt, Shift, and Print, Screen should bring up, a, uh, it says an alert on the screen that says, do you want to do this? We confirm and say yes. For those that you can see the screen, what it's actually done is it's created a flat, matte, black background. And, and the icons, for me, stand out a lot better. Doesn't mean I can still read it, but it's definitely taken off just that extra bit of you know, light that I don't really want, because it leads to headaches and all that God, good stuff that comes with that, yeah? Again, all built in. The next thing I want to do, though, is I do want to read the screen. So what we're going to do is, again, free, built in, on all Windows 10 and 11 systems, is do three keys. Oh, actually, no, no, sorry, I'm going to come back to that. We'll do the magnification is Windows key, and plus on the number pad, or if you're using a laptop, above number nine, is just to the right of zero. Um, go for that, so let's do Windows Plus. Okay, how are we getting on? Right, so we're gonna go slower, so people don't get, yep. yeah? And if those of you can see the screen, now we're just using the mouse, and it, you, it, the whole magnification follows the mouse. Again, there are software solutions on the market we can pay for, but I think try the built-in stuff. Why not, it's free. Uh, I'm an Indian. I love a good, you know, cost-effective solution. So, yeah. um, so here we go. In that respect, that's done. You know, we can basically make it as large or as small as you need. Now, if there's a Word document, for example, or if you want to press, for example, Windows key, the Start menu is now enlarged. And the great thing about that, whether you're a mouse user or a keyboard user, the focus will stay with you. Right? Great. So that's Windows as a as an example, but. What I'm also going to do, just so that you can hear it here as well, is also talk about a couple of other things, which is sometimes it gets to a point where just magnification gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then all you see is one word on a Word document at a time, for example. I've been there. And the next thing I know, if this sounds like something you've experienced, where you get eye strain, you've got headaches, your back starts to hurt, the next thing you know, you just need more breaks. So if, give me a clap if you get in that situation. Yeah, sounds... Yeah, sounds like we all have. Okay, and, and the only one who wins in that situation are the drug companies because you end up taking more painkillers. So we don't want to be doing that. So I would say the next solution is if we've got from that triangle from sight, and we're going to move over to sound. So what we're going to talk about is a built-in solution, which is on all systems, but I'm going to demonstrate Windows while I'm on it at the moment, is a screen reader. So for those that you don't know what a screen reader is, is what we have seen, if you've had some sight, the text, is converted to speech. It, that's why it's called text to speech. And that way, what you're doing is, rather than relying on the sense, which is your eyes, which we've, as children, we've relied on, we're now saying, well, why don't I just listen to it? You know, sit back, relax, posture's much better, and let's go with that. So what we're gonna do with the Windows solution is three keys. This is Control, Windows key, and Enter on the keyboard. So, Tekla, let's give that a go. If not, I can do it from this one here. No? That's right. Should I do it from here? Yeah. Okay, exit, cool. Exit, exit, exit. Oh, I could do that. So let's go for let's exit that. The one we'll do, so control, Windows. Set narrator heading level one. Welcome to narrator. This is narrator home, where you can get help 
access your settings, and learn about new features. Narrator is a screen reader that describes aloud what's on your screen, so you can use that information to navigate your device. To start or stop Narrator, press the Windows logo key and Control and Enter. Okay, you'll go on for a while. So, <laughs> all I've done is press Control and that's mute. So I'm going to press a couple of keys. Now, what's really important for any of you who start thinking about this as a, as a journey, because it is, it's a journey of adaptation, is there's two levels of learning, and I don't think it's spoken about enough. First learning, if you've come from a, a mouse background, which is fine, no issue, the way to drive this instrument, this, this tool, is to start thinking about the Windows inbuilt key commands, okay? And what I mean by that is, simple one, for example, is Windows and D for desktop. Serious accessible agent. So that means everything's closed. Sorry, I'm hitting my microphone. Uh, and all I've done there in one, well, two keystrokes is got to the desktop. And I'm, I'm not looking at the screen, I promise, for anyone not, I'm just going to press the Windows key. Start window, search, search box, edit, type here to search. So the first thing we do is it comes to a search box. Now, what's beautiful about Windows is it's the entry point to any program, setting, or anything you want. So let's just say, for example, I want to type on Microsoft Word. So I'll just type in Word. Key, suggestions available, Word, app. There you go. Press right to switch. So that's the first option. Hit enter. Pain. And I'm going to exit. Desktop. Right. And then I'm just going to do a little type to say. Uh, space. Oh, if it lets me do that, close you. You've got to love Windows when it does this. Taskbar pane. Start. But desktop list. No. Settings. Settings window. Start. Yeah. Key. Suggestions See, available. All tab item. One of four. Selected. Right. I'm going to. Apparently my Settings system doesn't window. want to open Word. Right, lovely, thanks Word. Okay, so in essence, what should have happened is a document would have come up. I'm going to go to the desktop. Hit w, Word, so. No item, Word window, new, blank document, okay. one of three, selected. Okay. Scan off, page. There we go. So I'm just going to say... Space. And then, if it wants to read... Uh, cap H. Page. I. Space. Hi. That's better. Now it's working. Took a little while, so. A -O space. How? A E space. R Y O U space. U L. So. Space. All. That's it. And so if I wanted to get that read back, just press the key. Empty document. There's empty document. And I can just say. Page one. Editable text. How are you? Should have read how are you? I really don't like live demonstrations. It never works. <laughs> all right, scrap all that. Edit it out, team. It works perfectly. I'll send you a video later. <laughs> but in essence, you get the principle. I don't, shouldn't need to, nor does anyone need to, to do that. So, okay, we've talked about magnification and we've talked about screen readers. I'm going to talk about where we're going on to. Any questions from the audience? A couple of quick ones. If not, I'll move on to smartphones and tablets. Oh, speak now, forever hold your peace. Yeah, go for it, yeah. Good night, over there, that's great, thanks. No worries. I'm gonna keep the team fit, everyone, love, love fitness, so everyone's gonna be running around, so. Um, I've never actually had a laptop for that very reason, because I've always been told that the um, internal voice on a laptop wasn't good but listening to that it would be basic for what i needed i sure. was always thought i had to use the other product yes 
which has got it already built in. Yeah. Um, so how easy is it for a total novice who doesn't even know how to use a keyboard? Right. So it's a good question. And do you remember I said to you, it's about this is a, I'm going to move on to something I just demonstrate after. It depends on your objectives as two things. One, to learn a keyboard, there are programs such as Azabat, A-Z-A-B-A-T, uh, designed actually by a blind chap because he was jokingly called it Blind Azabat. <laughs> so that is a touch typing program that you know you can actually get if you know if you're online. And the RNIB, we can we can discuss that too. The question that, and this is what I really say to a lot of people, we're going to move on to smartphones and tablets. This stuff is all now lifestyles. It's what is it you want to do? Is it important for you to have a, a computer? Or is it important that the technology that follows you? And this is going to make sense when I demonstrate smartphones and tablets, because I use my phone probably 99% of the time. And I use my laptop, apart from work, maybe the other 1%. You know, maybe if it's word processing or some maybe spreadsheets, but the joy of flexibility when we think about technology is you've got accessories. So you could get a wireless keyboard and run it with any bit of technology, be it your laptop, your smartphone or your tablet. And as long as you've got that orientation with those keys, then you're happy. Now, I'll give you an analogy. I love cars. Yeah, I don't drive often. Well, on a track I do, but not in public. They don't let me. And uh, what it is, we had a real challenge with other companies. I'm sure colleagues will echo this. You go to one manufacturer, you had one set of commands. You go to another one, you got another set of commands. So that's like asking drivers in the room. Here you go. There's one manufacturer. It's brake and sorry, it's accelerate, brake and clutch right to left. Then you get in another manufacturer's car. It's accelerate on the left clutch in the middle, brake on the right. Every time you get into a different manufacturer, your brain has to think, ah, what do I do here and which one is it? So the joy for us is we've got the choices, all companies, barring one, I won't name and shame, but the majority have agreed that why do we need to have all these convoluted keyboard commands? Just use one set of commands at work. So, for example, if you know Windows keys, like I just mentioned, Windows and D, they're all online. I appreciate a lot of people is digitally excluded, but talk to us, you know, the teams here. Once you've got online, you're in the arena, basically. You're there playing the game of getting information. You can upskill yourself. And then it's really great because let's say you went onto Google, for example, then the narrator or the other system such as voiceover and talkback, let's take just this one. All you do is you press B for a button, E for an edit field to search, you know, L for a link. And you know what? Once you get it, you beat sighted people, I promise you. you know, once you get competent with it, it's really intuitive. But it does start with that foundation of get your Windows keyboard commands, because that works for every keyboard on the market. That's a quality keyboard. So I can't answer how long it takes because you're a unique individual, but it might take you a week, it might take you a month. But that's the joy of it. Once you get it, it stays with it. It's transferable. Yeah? Cool. Any other questions before I go on to smartphones and tablets? Yeah. I'm just in the process of actually going back to work in a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. and they want me to use um, their laptop. Uh, my question is, I know you're going to ask about smart tablets. Mm -hmm. Can I use window packages on an iPad in the interim before I get a support worker? And I've got a Windows keyboard, yeah. and I'm doing all the gestures, and I'm making the right GUI <laughs> out of it. So, And sure. I, can, I use a touch type, so... Yeah, help, okay. please. Yeah, no worries. Well, I would say a simple answer would be some yes, not all. Some packages are specialist. And Apple, 
they're great, but they're also a bit of a, a specific way they're, they're designed their packages, so some won't work. I would say your specific support at RNIB, we do have employment support, give us a call, because it's going to take a little bit more time than I've probably got on the stage to actually answer that. But I think that's a conversation we should take away from here. And I'm sure colleagues will echo this, uh, that it's one of those things that once we know what you're using in the environment you're using it, we'll make sure that that setting is, is sorted so that you don't have a barrier. So it's not an issue. But yeah, come back to us, give us a call, and we'll talk about that in more detail. Right. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Um, I've seen uh, this kind of um, software here or with the other one called Dolphin. Okay. Uh, applied to every, every time to Windows based software. Yeah. But my question is. Um, why is Mac software always kind of out of the conversation? Is it because it's not inclusive enough or okay. it's because it has other features, it's harder? Okay. Uh, what do you think about that? A couple of different principles and reasons. Okay, so the statistics show that majority of blind and partial sight people use iOS, which is Apple smartphones and tablets. From a desktop or laptop perspective, it's the reverse for two reasons. Education and employment still use Windows predominantly. So most people who have experience with a system will use that because that's what normally helps them to go into that next level. So for example, if you're going to go into an employer, that's where the level of skill, knowledge goes. Now, Mac isn't a bad system, but in itself is more complex, especially compared to it. Think of it like, a let's think of it like a, this ground floor, okay? Windows is one layer, one level. And then when you open the program, it's still one level, it's ground access. You just go through each, you know, you go from seat to table to drink, it's all on one level. Mac, in the wondrous, fan, lovely way they design stuff, and it's all brilliant, is it's an interaction level. So what that means is your chairs are on one level. Then to interact with, say, a table, you have to go down into it. So that's like stepping down into another level. And then you step back into that level. So then the problem with that is people have to have another level of understanding of not just the environment, but the depth of where things are. So for that reason, from a speed screen reader perspective, it's a little bit less efficient and effective than Windows. From a magnification perspective, it's all even. Both have magnification. So it all depends on your need. Does that help answer and explain? Yeah, of course. But um, I, I agree that simplicity is key. Yeah. This. As, as simple as it can be, yeah. the better. Cool. But isn't uh, AI kind of something that also can help make things easier? Like the kind of the way you relate with the technology, for instance, voice command and that kind of things, like okay. talking to your computer and making it do things for you. Like I, I know it sounds kind of sci-fi, but we're getting there, you know. So okay, that's, that's, I knew that question was going to come up. It was like, what about AI? I always say to people, think of AI as an infant. It's only about four or five years old. The thing is, expectations in the room, always people say to me, can we just not talk to the stuff? So the first thing I always say to people is, unless you know your environment and you know what you want to instruct that device to do, dictation's great. You can be in a Word document, you can be in a text message and be like, um, you know, hi everyone, loving the conference, really great questions. But imagine you're out and about. I'm just going to give you a lifestyle experience. I use my phone with the same principle as technology. If I only learnt it by dictating and vocal instruction, do you think I want to send my bank account out loud with the PIN number? Okay, 
So let's flip that on its head for a second, because a lot of people say this to me often. So Devinda, can I just talk to you? I say, it's an option. It's the cherry on the cake, but it's not the cake. The thing that it should be thought about is, and I'll give you an example, whether it's a keyboard or your hands or the touchscreen. True story. I was on a train, had my guide dog, who, bless him, retired last year. Last year? Last week. Gosh. Good. And uh, he was with me. Well, just, I think, obviously, people love dogs, right? And my phone was out on the table. I'm typing away, doing some bits. It's a completely black screen. Now, the gentleman goes, what, mate? You know your screen ain't working over there, bruv. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, uh, yeah, that's no, it's right, mate. It's good, it's good. But why are you looking at my phone? So human curiosity was that I was actually doing my banking with my headphones in, which are wireless, a wireless keyboard, and it was spoken to me. I'm actually safer doing my banking than sighted people. Yes, take that. <laughs> I've got to take the victory where you can, right? So what I'm trying to say to you is, it's about a big picture understanding of what's the right tool for the situation you're in. Because if you only learn that one route, you restrict yourself. Whereas I'm about what's the weakest link in the chain? Let's make that a strength. Because if you learn all these, how many tools have you got in your toolkit? If you said, it's like, I think, I think, well, maybe Denise yesterday said something like, you know, sometimes you need a screwdriver, sometimes you need a hammer. You know, I don't recommend that with the tech because it's probably a bit dodgy. <laughs> but in essence, it's true. Every tool or every principle or every skill you learn as an individual based on your objective, you know, makes, makes a difference. And it's no difference to whether the barrier could be, for example, let's have another clap. I haven't had a clap in a while. But who in the room has had a situation where they've got a letter and you've struggled to read it? Let's have a clap if that's the case. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so, and how many of us have maybe gone into the kitchen and a family, a friend, or somebody's moved something and you don't know where it is? Yeah. A little clap for that one. Yeah. There we go. Okay. And all of these things are principles of a couple of things, not just tech, but communication and familiarity. Now, why Apple is so key in while people, some will say they don't like the fact that it's locked down. But the analogy I always use to people I teach is this. Would you, can I get a clap if you know your kitchen well? Yeah? Some of you need to start cooking more. That wasn't loud enough. But. <laughs> right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that you know your kitchen. Now, you might know that through looking at the kitchen, partially sighted. Or like myself, you might go in and be hands-on and using that touch in that triangle I mentioned. Right. So if you know your kitchen and I come to your home or you come to my home and I say, guys, make me a tea or coffee. What do you think you'll need to do? I would say me and yourselves will share something. We'll have a, a, a spot of time to learn that environment, map it out in our minds. Would you agree? If you agree, give me a clap. All right. We're on the same page. Beautiful. Beautiful. So the difference is systems such as Android's and we're not criticizing them, they're what we call open source. Every company wants to use them. So when Google makes something, Google make it look and feel like Google. When Samsung does it, Samsung will change it to make it look and feel like Samsung. Then say LG pops up and they'll be like, hey, we want it to look and feel like LG. So every time you pick up a new device, doesn't mean we can't use it because of this technology, it works. But what happens is you, your kitchen is now someone else's kitchen and you have to spend that time to map it. Whereas Apple, if me and colleagues are using Apple devices or me and you are using devices, the moment you know the principles of how to use it with a screen reader or magnification, guess what? All of our kitchens are one kitchen. So it doesn't take any or not a lot of effort for you to pick up another device off the shelf, another device off a family and friend and be like, bang, I'm straight there. Again, it's what I call considerations. 
People talk too much about the right and wrong thing. I'm saying it's a consideration. What is important to you, because the tech has to fit your lifestyle, it has to add value to your life. I also will say a barrier, you know, we talked about ramps, barrier could be finance. So another thing people often say to me, I wasn't sure if it's gonna come up as a question, is, but Android's cheaper and our Apple's well expensive. Well, I'll say to people this, I'll say, that's a fair point, but I've got clients who've bought a hundred pound device, just got frustrated, put it in a drawer, and then I've had people who bought a 400 pound Apple device, it's changed their life. For me, a hundred pounds and never using it in a piece of dust or a, or a bookshelf for item is more painful than 400 pounds or something that gives you joy and quality to your life. Would you give me a clap if you agree? And there are solutions, there's grants, there's a way of you know, getting around that barrier from technology every day. One thing we haven't talked about, because we talk about the hard skills, is how are we going to get the device? So we work both from RNIB, we have a grant system, which our eligibility is online, but we also work with fantastic organisations, uh, an individual I mentioned, for example, Cambridge. Uh, if you're interested, do type in, and I'll send the details out on the notes, but it's individual, uh, uh, independent technology solutions, or, which is I India T Tango S Sierra V Victor I India P Papa. It's vip.org. And they do loans, and, but they, the only difference I'd say is all of these solutions do require that you've spoken to a professional. So not me, because I don't know nothing. So anyone else, my colleagues in the room, talk to them. Uh, but basically what it is, if you've spoken to a professional, could it be one of our team? It could be a rehab, a techlo, you know, any of these, I'm, I'm generally echoes, they're all great. So you do need to speak to somebody who will give you the best guidance to say, have you considered these angles and these things? And is it gonna be suitable? And then we'll make a referral based on that. So if that's a barrier, I'm just here to tell you that from an acquiring technology perspective, this, there is solutions. Okay, and then that's when all this good stuff happens. Okay, um, team at the back, any questions online? How are we doing? Move on? Okay, we're good, move on. Right, so what I'll do, I'm gonna ask my demo cam to kick in, if, if you wouldn't make mind. So, uh, let's, I'm gonna do that. Okay, can I grab the tablet? Are you happy to run or do you want me to? Right, so what we've got, because the, the technology didn't quite let us display this on screen and for you at home at Zoom, what we're gonna try and do is we've got a demo cam, we're gonna try and feed this in. So um, I'm hoping what you'll see is a live shot on screen, which is our interactions with a tablet. Now what we're gonna demonstrate, I mentioned Windows, and now this is now the smartphone tablet. Touchscreen can be a little bit scary. Uh, some people say to me all the time, oh, actually, do you know what? I'm familiar with the button. Yeah, that tactile touch is beautiful. But a, a flat glass can be scary. Okay, so here's another barrier. Tell me, or have a wave clap, has change felt scary at any point for your life? Yeah? Okay. Now, there's a really simple thing I say to people. Those who are successful are those that adapt to change. So if you adapt to change by learning these skills through our support and guidance uh, nationally we're all here, you'll get far. So why does that mean what, what's going on with this device? Well, with a simple gesture, and this has already been switched on, but a three finger double tap. Now what should happen on screen is it should enlarge. Now, if it hasn't, 
Do you want me to give it a go? Yeah? Okay. Now, for those who can see the screen, I'm just going to describe that this, with a finger gesture, three finger double tap, you can now interact and move the screen in the direction you wish to go. If you want to adjust the magnification, you can do as well, because of course, it's not the same for everyone. What you do is a three finger double tap and hold the screen, and you just slide up for more magnification, and you will slide down for less. So again, really personal to you. Again, just depends on what you want to do. But as I mentioned before, with this, with this whole sight thing, do you really want to be on a train in your home? Is it going to hurt your posture? Is this the right solution? Just a question to ask yourselves. Yeah, but it's there. So, you know, we could open things. And again, I've added the same high contrast to Windows. So, for example, if we found settings on the screen, those that will see the screen will also notice that it's white text on a black background. So again, it takes the glare away. All these are universal principles. The barriers are getting overtaken out of the equation. What I'm also going to demonstrate, and this one I'll probably do with my phone, just to be a little bit easier, is the screen reader. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I will grab my little trusty dongle. And then if demo cam follows me in a second. So there we go. Here's one I prepared earlier. No blue beat badge. Sorry, guys. So, right, let's hopefully hear. Apple folder, 10 apps, right, 20 new items. Is That's the screen reader on a, This is now an iPhone. Now, of course, I'm saying the universal principles apply to all. So, for example, if I wanted to go through the screen. Unmuted. Just touch the screen on the Entertainment top. folder, accessibility apps folder, 11 apps. Apple folder, 10 apps. Business folder, eight apps. Communication folder, 11 apps. Beautiful. 94 new I So there we go. And it's as straightforward as touch, and you've learned the environment, because you now I know where things are. But there's also a gesture to do this, but I'm just gonna be mindful of time, so I'm not gonna go into full training, but just to give you an idea that I'm definitely not needing to look at the screen. I can just relax, put my headphones in if I want privacy. And for those who are, you know, in terms of no sight. Edit speech off. Oh, we don't wanna do that. <laughs> Speech on. Now, that is total blindness, okay, on the spectrum. But future-proofing us, because I'm all about future-proofing. Entertainment for accessibility apps folder, 11 Apple folder, 10 apps. Business folder, 8 apps. Communication folder, 11 apps. It's the same information, yeah? And that's, to be fair, that's why I love technology. Because I don't live in hope with a cure. I hope it does happen, and I love and respect all the work going on. I live in hope that every day I will stay strong enough and tenacious enough to learn a new skill that makes me better for today. And this stuff helps. Yeah. So let's uh, screen curtain off. Give your eyesight back. And I'm just going to demonstrate a couple of really powerful apps. And the reason I want to demonstrate a couple is just because some of you will have come across this, and some of you may not. So, um, in terms of a smartphone or tablet, this is where I think it overtakes the laptop or desktop. Because again, be mindful, it's got a camera, it's with you. So I'm going to go to my accessibility folder, which is top left. Accessibility apps folder, 11 apps. To open it, like a left click of a mouse, or just a double tap or a knock on the door, so tap, tap twice anywhere on the screen. So, that folder is now open. I'm gonna flick to the right. Accessibility apps, error, be my eyes. That's one service I'd like to come back to. Blind square. Clue, Navi Lens, Seeing AI. And that's the first app. Now we have heard of this and some people in the room may already use this. But what I'm gonna do is double tap it. 
Now, depending on how the connection goes in the room, this will be... Now, can I just get the... Do not now? disturb. Image, status bar item. Okay. The black shoe on the white surface. Thank you very much. Now, what I've got here is I've got a flyer. And I have no Channel. idea what it is. Short so, text. Adjustable. I'm just going to scan it. We're just pointing. Go said. Go said. 40 you said. Spring to... 40 you said. 40 well, you said. something else. You oh. said. Spring 2022. You said. Wanted to from... Retina on and managing with look okay. forward. We did. Okay. We and launched our innovative Papio Bullet DI today. We need your help today. We need your help more than ever. Please donate today. Thank you so much for your support. Please complete and post this form to Retina UK, Wharf House, Stratford Road, Buckingham, MK89 TD. You're welcome, Tina. Um, <laughs> so, um, again, really straightforward, just if you're, it's your post, your letters, happy days. You've literally got independent skill in, in the palm of your hands, you know. Another service, but I'm mindful of time, probably won't be a demonstration, will be, um, there's Be My Eyes, which is, you've got five million volunteers. Um, Tekla, could you grab my, in the very front zip, my pass? Uh, but I will show one innovation in a second. Um, so the Be My Eyes service, just to give you an idea, is sometimes, a, and this is an AI, it's an artificial intelligence we talked about. So it's, a, it's an entry one, but it's fantastic. And you've got the same on Android, if you're an Android user. It's called Google Lookout. Both of these services, both these apps are free. Okay? So again, that's something for anyone who wants to use that. But Be My Eyes uh, is 5 million volunteers who, but in essence, let's say, for example, you've got a piece of, I don't know, let's say something in the cupboards, but that this can't scan it. Pop it in front, you've got a pair of eyes. I've done it when I was on holiday, where currency or, you know, you go into a hotel or a conference and you can't find something. Fantastic service. So if you haven't used Be My Eyes, hopefully check it out. And an innovation I thought I'd mention to you that's happening at the moment, uh, just by way of clap, anyone heard of an application called NaviLens? A couple of people, okay, okay. So this is now going on to innovation. And I've got a colleague here, we can probably talk about other innovations as well, or see them at the stand or come across them at the stand uh, in the other room. NaviLens is like a barcode that you get on your supermarket uh, products. And, sorry? Yeah. But this is different. It's actually got, it's, it's kind of, I would say, colors but large dots. Screen dimmed. Don't do that. And uh, <laughs> what happens, see, I end up arguing with my tech, it's worse. Um, so what it does is you, buy, you can actually do signage, you can label things. And in fact, Barcelona, where Javier designed it, actually is where they started to do it on bus stops, you get live bus times. Uh, London Euston has a, a, an actual test of this. So I'm gonna demonstrate it. What I will caveat is this. Um, I'm gonna demonstrate a video before we finish on wearables, because I wanna finish off with some wearables. But I'm gonna say that this tech is amazing, but still relies on us as blind and partially sighted people using our device in our hands. Now, how many of us want to be in a public environment with a very fantastically shiny, expensive device in front of us? I don't know about you, but I don't feel that comfortable doing it, yeah? So the barrier in this situation isn't that the innovation doesn't work, it's the application is via an accessory. So I'll talk about that more, but let me demonstrate it first. Error. So back to the beginning, going to find NaviLens. Be my eyes. Blind square, clue, navi lens. There it is, and I'll just do a double tap. Now, techlo. Navi lens, point at a navi lens code with the camera to read it. Mm -hmm. With a pass, please. Oh. 
So what I'm going to do, so some audio description. Teclo is moving to the middle of the room as Teclo walks through, is going to be holding an Abbey Lens code. Davinda is moving his camera. Okay. And I will do audio describe. So what I'm doing for the clock face individuals in the room, because I'm facing yourself, to my 12 o'clock, I'm starting from 10 o'clock and I'm going right. So I'm now around my 11 o'clock, scanning the room with this code. It's good, the camera's running. It's going to about 12 o'clock. Now, if it's too far, it may not pick it up. So, because it's a small sub, what I'm going to ask you to do then, uh, Tekla, come closer, because this isn't a big sign. So, now I'm going to do it again. That might be that the, I might have to move away from the lectern. So, I'm going to try now the reverse. I'm going to go from my, ten, uh, my two o'clock, scanning the room again, and I'm going to go, there we go. Six feet away, RNIB, Devinda Kali Technology for Life Coordinator. Judd Street. There we go. And that's my pass. So that's a pass where the code has been labelled. So had you a piece of tech, which I'll talk about, a wearable, or your phone, that could be disabled toilets. It could be signage for, say, um, a restaurant. Or it could just be, for example, a sign at the bottom of the floor that says, turn left for this exhibition room, etc., etc. So that is the forward innovation, amongst others, just to give you an idea of how optics are coming in. Now, I'm mindful of time, because I know uh, we're going to do some question and answers. So I'm just going to do final for you, DJ. Could you just do that video for me, please? And we'll go on to wearables and where we're moving forward to. And thanks, Democan. Independence. The dictionary defines it as the ability to live your life without being helped or influenced by others. It could also mean the ability to discover a whole new recipe. Chicken and pumpkin soup. Soup ingredients. It could also mean submitting an assignment just before the deadline. It could be sharing a laugh with a colleague near the coffee machine. Looks like Alex from finance. To step out for some fresh air and roam the streets without any worry. Looks like a body of water running through a grassy field. Or just managing to catch that train during rush hour. 1541 Sprinter, Amsterdam Central, via Maria Hope. To be able to sort and read my own letter. Credit card statement, post box 289. To be able to pop quickly into my favorite local store. Mango chutney. It is to know that when I get stuck, I have people to call upon. Hey, yes, and where are you? Hey there, um, there seems to be a roadblock here. Can you help me out? I can help you out. Uh, do you want to use like a roadmap or something? Okay, wait, I'll share my location. All hands meeting. Tulip 3 meeting room. Tulip 3. To be surrounded by great people and be surprised by their love. Looks like a birthday cake with lit candles. To cook my favorite meal that my lovely family can't get enough of. To push my physical limits. To move, to jump, to punch and to feel alive. I wish you the happiest year ahead. To be me. To be Parham Dusta.
to be me, to be Jesse Wienholt. To be me, to be Joy Barry. Introducing Envision Glasses, the new AI-powered smart glasses by Envision, empowering the blind and visually impaired to be more independent. Available for pre-order now. That's just one example. Others do exist. It's got to be independent. But it's amazing wearables are coming out. These are glasses based on the Google platform. And uh, again, it's just, I think it's an exciting time for us. We've got a lot of innovations coming along. A lot of companies are working on, uh, including great products like that. So I think for me, I'll stop and I'll put it back to you. And thanks for your time. Any questions or anything, or is are we, Matt, are we okay for time? Ten minutes. Ten minutes, so questions, back to the room, online, I'll open it up to, to anybody. What have you got by your feet? Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> totally forgot about that one. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. So what Matt's just kindly do, just reminded me of is I have got an A-lady in the room. So I totally forgot about that. So Thanks, Matt. Uh, let me just see if she, but the thing is, she was being a bit temperamental. Right. Oh, hello there. Uh, you know this app that you just showed us, this Navi, Navi what? Navi code, yeah. Is that a bit like a pen friend? It works on a very similar principle. Oh, the right. difference with a pen friend, though, is you will scan it with a device that is a specialist product. You label with audio voice what it is. Whereas with NaviLens, it's labels that can be provided to you by the company. And you can do the same thing. You can label it. But what companies are trying to do for example, RNIB works with Kellogg's, and uh, it's one of the products that they've tried to work with for a marketing perspective. Say, okay, if you want to find cereal, uh, you might want to use that. Now, again, I'm not. There are other brands that are out there, but it's just a test of innovation. Would this technology be suitable? And for some, it may. For some, it may not. But it's, if glasses and wearables or other things come into to the market, it is basically saying, well, how else could you get the information? And I obviously I'm an advocate of Braille, and I'm going to bring a colleague into that briefly. Um, but I am an absolute advocate that other options exist. But this is just where we're going in terms of innovation. Um, if this doesn't work, which is highly likely, what I might just do is, because I think it's really important we do touch on Braille. I think Braille's not been talked about enough. Dave, could I lean on you to talk about some of the work that, for example, the Braillist Foundation and collaboration we do? Absolutely. Yeah, do you want to, could a mic come over to Dave? That'd be great. Hello, everybody. Uh, so we talk a lot about our toolbox. And if you remember Davinda's triangle um, of our sense of sight, our sense of hearing, and our sense of touch. And I believe that our sense of touch is very underutilized. And actually, you know, it's a very useful and important sense. And as a young man growing up, I didn't identify as a Braille user at all. I just felt that these big, bulky, heavy, beige books were just so far away from where I wanted to be. And actually, when I got into work, I realized that in order to free my ears to access the people and the environment around me, that actually Braille was a useful tool for uh, writing notes, for proofing documents, delivering presentations. But even more powerful than that was when I became a dad, I couldn't find any better way of sharing the bedtime story with my baby boy. So he is fully sighted. I don't hold that against him. It's not his fault. 
but me and his mum are blind and of course we were able to get the wonderful uh, books from the clear vision library um, that uh, they provide the print book with clear plastic pages in between those pages so we were able to share the joy of the bedtime story together and at that moment I had a bit of a, a, an epiphany where Braille was concerned that actually Braille wasn't something that separated me from other people it meant that as a parent I could do more of the same things that other dads uh, and mums do um, across the world so I became involved with a focus group um, who were working with a company down in Bristol and born out of that became what is now the Brailleists Foundation and we registered with the Charity Commission in early 2020 um, just before the lovely pandemic came along and said we weren't allowed to touch anything or go near anybody so you can imagine obviously we had a little bit of a existential crisis but we moved our activities online like most people and uh, we have in the last three years delivered um, beginners courses for around 250 people who've managed to learn Braille remotely and I think that's something that has been missing up until now is that sense of community while we all find technology empowering sometimes it can be isolating but actually we can turn that around and we can use technology to bring us together because actually you know as blind and partially sighted people we are a low incidence disability you know at RNIB we talk about around 2 million people in the UK have some form of sight loss but that's only one in 30 which means we're fairly thinly distributed throughout the um, population and those who identify uh, as being blind like myself um, and those who have an interest in braille are much fewer so through the braillists foundation we have built a community of um, braille expertise people who are interested to learn more about braille how they can use braille to complement other access methods i used to work for dolphin computer access who um, developed the supernova uh, software and actually in some parts of the world magnification and braille is a very powerful combination for people who just don't get on with synthetic speech and I know myself that if I'm on the train and I've got my headphones on there's a good chance I'm going to miss a sandwich trolley going past so I definitely don't want that to happen so um, I think it's important to have those tools in the toolbox don't rule anything out and even if braille is not your thing think of a jar of marmite when you put your hand in the cupboard uh, to find an item when your hand reaches around the jar of marmite straight away you know if it's something you want or something you don't want depending on how you feel about marmite and that's because the marmite jar i think is an excellent example of really inclusive design that as soon as you touch it you recognize that shape and you know about that shape so let's celebrate our sense of touch now we're allowed to touch things again which is wonderful uh, and of course hand sanitizer at the ready if uh, if that's what you need but uh, yeah do uh, check out braillists.org and of course myself and Colin Shales from the West Midlands Technology for Life team we're going to be out um, in the exhibition area in the next room and we'll be very happy to take any questions you have about RNI be or the technology work that we do there. Yeah. Right. We've got a question online. Do we know if that's okay? Sure. And I'll just say one thing before we go to questions. Sure. As well in the exhibition centre, she wasn't working, the A lady. And uh, so I can say her name. So the smart speakers are a big advent in people's lives as well now. So I think what I'd also echo is that, forgive the pun, uh, Amazon is next door too. Uh, please do, you know, find out more about them. Things such as 
the great thing they do, just top level, is fantastic clock, just asking for time. Your information, the weather, and now even things such as not just entertainment or music, but our RNIB Talking Books Library is available there too. So the advent of smart speakers are really taking hold, and there's a lot of use cases for blind and partial sighted people. So I thought I'd just add that in the mix as more tools to our belt. But over to questions. Okay, so this is from online. As a partially sighted person who uses colour inversion and magnification on a smartphone, but my current Android phone is getting old. Can you speak about the comparison between Android, Android accessibility and iPhone? And how could I talk to someone about it, please? Okay, yeah. Again, I don't want to make it a versus thing. This is better than that. I'd say they both have their strengths. I would say, please do give us a call at RNIB. Uh, if you don't know the number, I'll say it now, but also share it later. It's 0303-123-9999. Myself, colleagues, such as Colin in the room as well, we all will happily talk to you. We're either buying and partially sighted ourselves, uh, or we've got a, a wealth of knowledge in the team. Uh, it's, it's discussions like that that we love having because we've been there and we'll give you straightforward, no, no jargon, uh, and it's all going to be about you. So please, let's, let's pick that conversation up and please do give us a call. Any other questions? Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, I've worked for a long time um, in the entertainment industry from different sites. I worked for a while in media, then I worked with video games, and currently I'm uh, getting into the film industry here in the UK. Uh, and um, one experience I've had is that from uh, the side of the people that are making the technology, in the case of video games, for example, sometimes they don't even know how easy it is for them to adapt a couple of things on twitching some things yeah. to make their video games, for example, accessible to people with uh, partial, uh, partially sighted like me, for instance. Sure. And sometimes it's just like, like you said, changing the back to make it dark and mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. and, and they are impressed when they do something like that and, and they can say they're inclusive making these switches. Uh, the same with the film industry. Uh, the latest movies that are coming with a lot of CGI and stuff like that mm -hmm. sometimes are very complex for someone that is trying to figure out what's going on and mm -hmm. maybe for them it's just trying to make, I don't know, less layers out of that and instantly you can know what's going on just like when you see a 2D old cartoon where it's just a super simple thing going on. Sure. So my question is, sure. how is RNIB uh, connecting with uh, industries just like the creative industries like I mentioned, or rather, besides these things that are very important because they are day-to-day -day kind of things like to get your life going and it's amazing, you have to start from that. But we also want to be part of the conversation socially more uh, wider, you know, and be part of the movies, the video games, the podcast, whatever. Okay. So my question is, how is RNIB hooking up with the, the industries to let them know how they could be more inclusive and how we as, uh, as the users of that can help you guys out to, to point where, where to go or what can we do? 
Okay, cool. Well, I've been given the, I'm literally going to answer this quickly because we are short of time and I'm not going to keep you from lunch. Um, what it is, I'd say, and Dave will also probably echo this, there's a lot of work going on social media wise and we're linking in with a lot of studios for games, uh, including Audible Games. There are a lot of users on the form. So I'll, what I'll do is I'll find the exact information and we'll get that out to, to attendees via the Retina UK team. And also we do a lot of work with audio description, working with Netflix, other providers, uh, vocalized and charity. So if you haven't used audio description on your media, use that too. But this, after the session, happy to pick up, I'm around, colleagues are around, we'll pick it up, no problem at all. So sorry for that to be a short one on that one, but I am now out of time. So thank you guys and you very much. Huge, huge thank you, Davinda. Um, technology is always um, one of those really emotive subjects. You know, it's Apple with Android. We'll, uh, we will get ready to rumble <laughs> over lunch, um, which is now. Um, so lunch and the exhibition is in the room next door. So please do um, grab yourself a sandwich. So we have ham sandwiches, ham and tomato. Those are on the left-hand side of the room at the back. Uh, the vegetarian option is egg mayonnaise, which is on the right-hand side. Anybody who asked for a specific um, dietary requirements, those are in the back of the room and your names are on the bags. For anybody with assistance dogs, if you would like one of the Retin UK team to take it for a spend, um, then just come and see one of the members of the team. So please be back promptly for um, 10 past two for the afternoon session. Thank you very much. Welcome back everybody, whether you're in the room or online, we're delighted to see you and we hope that you really enjoyed your lunch. So we've got a very exciting session now. It's, uh, it's one that we're extremely proud and delighted to be doing today and that is launching our new course, Discover Wellbeing. We created the course in response to the findings of the 2019 Sight Loss Survey which revealed that 92% of the community had experienced emotional and psychological impacts as a result of their condition. Through Discover Wellbeing, we aim to help those living with inherited sight loss and those able and who support them to develop an awareness of the emotional well-being and practical skills to actively adapt to life's ups and downs. To tell us more, I'm delighted to welcome three speakers who have played a key role in developing this innovative resource. So Dr. Mari Thurston, John Manning and Denise Rawdon are going to take you through our brand new resource. Enjoy the afternoon. Thank you very much. So, um, yes, uh, I'm delighted to be here. Um, uh, from home, so anything could happen. Uh, I have a very vocal guide dog downstairs uh, who may start barking any minute. I have uh, adult children who have been given strict instructions not to stream anything. And uh, so we hope that the, the Wi-Fi holds out. Um, but I am really, really delighted to be with you today. And I'm sorry it's not in person. Um, so we're going to look today and what I want to talk about is um, 
about sight loss and mental health. And some of you may have heard me talk before about this. Um, and it's uh, an issue really that has gained more traction and more recognition. Um, but for those of you who haven't heard me speak before, let me just start by, uh, if I can, just by telling you a bit about myself. So uh, I come from a family of artists and musicians and teachers. And uh, when I was 18, I went to art college and I studied drawing and painting and fine art, uh, printmaking at Edinburgh uh, Art College and University. And then I went on to do teacher training and I taught as a primary teacher for uh, many years, like living out my, my childhood dream and my kind of family expectation. And um, during that time, uh, I became married. I had uh, two children very close together. I carried on being a working mum. Uh, and that life was really busy because uh, the, the like the children were maybe three and two, you know, well, they were <laughs> very close together. And uh, so with two toddlers and a full time job and a partner who worked full time, we were juggling life as it was. And I became pregnant unexpectedly with my third child. Uh, and at that time, I started to realize that I wasn't reading teletext because it's back in the day, back in the day before there was all smart apps and things. I wasn't able to read that as well as I had been. And I went to the optician uh, to find out uh, if, what glasses I might need. And at that appointment, there was triggered a referral to the hospital and uh, that referral to the hospital triggered a series of appointments. And uh, just uh, before my uh, baby was due, I was told that I uh, had retinitis pigmentosa and that there was no cure for it and that it would lead to blindness. And that's what I heard. I don't think they actually said these words, but what I heard was you're going blind and there's no cure. And uh, I had no family history of this. Uh, so there was nobody in the family that, to figure out how it would progress. Um, and I mean, it was just such a shocking time. Um, my third child was born into this chaos. Um, and uh, yeah, and life became increasingly difficult because very soon I was told that you don't have enough sight to drive. And that, uh, you know, trying to kind of go back after maternity leave and lead a kind of life as normal was really hugely difficult. Um, and it wasn't normal. It was, in fact, I was spiraling into a really deep despair and depression. Um, I tried to carry on with my, my teaching job, but I felt I can't do this. I can't, how can I teach if I have no sight? You know, so um, I stopped teaching. I took an early retirement from teaching. And um, I, uh, we had to, because we had one income, we had to then move to a smaller house. And so within a very short period of time, I wasn't in my kind of support systems at work because I had good friends at work. I didn't have uh, like the support systems of home, family home, I was in a new area, in a new house. And, um, and I felt really unable to cope. And at this point, like, nobody was 
asking about how I was feeling. Or I think maybe somebody did say, do you want a visit from social work? And of course I thought, well, if social work comes, they'll take away my children. So I didn't want any, any intervention from social work. And um, then I was offered um, a training, long cane training. And during that, I realized how my life had changed from being kind of an able-bodied member of society. I was that uh, person using a cane to get around. And then all my internal prejudices were triggered because if you think about our society, you know, the representations of blind people usually um are around like the blind beggar or the kind of the, the witch in the fairy tale or something or somebody you know one there's no kind of wonderful I, I really want to be that blind person or there wasn't at the time i wasn't aware of it at the time I, I didn't even think about blindness so that was a really tricky time and um, my depression lingered and spiraled and um i uh, there was maybe two or three missing years which really is hard to recount because these were the formative years of my kids and i wasn't i was kind of missing in action i was there in body but um i really was in a black hole so things changed when i got my first uh, guide dog and um it wasn't as it wasn't as straightforward the sun came out because at the point i went into training with the guide dog i realized this is it i'm a blind person you know there's no escaping this i can't hide my stick i'm out with my guide dog i'm actually out and about um and that was really a low the lowest point of all i think um but there was something about my, my guide dog was really pretty special and um she became the guide dog of the year she was called wanda and she did an amazing job because my kids were still really small I mean, they were still um under five or, you know maybe the oldest one was uh, seven seven six and four or something at the time we got her and um so she used to come to nursery you know what help me walk the kids to nurse into primary school and she would do the ballet classes with us and disco dancing and um come swimming and like with the family and you go she was just like was quite extraordinary we'd do brown talks and 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 the general public the british public tend to love guide dogs i don't know if any of you are a guide dog owner or you might have your guide dogs with you today but you'll feel you'll understand where there's a kind of real fascination for this so i took this as um like there was a lot of publicity around it and soon i began to feel more integrated into society I felt like there was something I'd done, you know, my, uh, that uh, I, I kind of overcome something and there was a lot of publicity. I think we were all, we went on Blue Peter and we were on the side of a London bus and, you know, like, so that kind of helped my confidence. And when I had that confidence, I went to do a night class um, in counselling skills because I thought if I can't see, perhaps I'll be able to um, be able to listen to people and so i did the counseling skills i really loved it and i stayed on and did a diploma and then went on to a master's and what really fascinated me and this started it all off and this was way back in 2008 i think um was like i i was really aware of the how cycles had impacted on my mental health but mental health is still a kind of taboo topic back in 2008 um 
you know, it was kind of called emotional rather than mental health. I'm not, we're much more upfront now about talking about it, although there's still a kind of lingering stigma, but the young people nowadays quite openly talk about mental health. So um, I, was, I was keen to know, did anybody else experience this or was it just me? Was, it, was I weak in some way? You know, did, uh, you know, was I a bit of, of a wuss? You know? uh, so I constructed, I did my first uh, research and um, interviewed uh, 18 uh, participants who all, uh, I think the majority of them actually had RP uh, with a link through the links with my um, local societies. I think maybe some, there was some that didn't. Anyway, what they what I found out from that, that was that sight loss really impacted in key areas, and one was uh, in terms of making sense of the diagnosis, how difficult that was for people, um, and also the the coping with degenerating sight. So there was something about you know each eye felt really important, like I can see uh, my good eye, but my my good eye is going a bit, losing a bit of sight now. So uh, having to adapt all the time to less decreasing vision and to to kind of adapt your lifestyle. So that was really tricky. Um, also the feelings of loss that people had. Um, you know, experiencing sight loss in terms of loss of um, skills and abilities. Like, so mine was an art background and I felt like it was really cruel that my sight would be impacted because that was one thing that I, I loved to do. I was really visual about the world and, you know, just still, still with my residual sight, I appreciate, you know, what I can see. But um, that, I felt acutely that loss and also loss of hopes and dreams you know of of kind of aspirations of like what will my kids be like on their wedding day you know people these were kind of shared uh dreams that uh, that people reported as uh losing i can't see my grandchildren anymore or you know or what if um i can't do the job as an engineer i was going to travel abroad but i can't do that now. so it kind of felt like it robbed a future so feelings of loss were a big deal and also in terms of um public reactions to sight loss so experiencing others you know um there were some really um <clears throat> challenges that people reported in in uh in interacting with the public either you're treated as a kind of pariah um because people are awkward around sight loss and they don't know maybe speak to your partner not you or speak to your friends and not not you or, or i mean i used to find people would talk really slowly to me like if i got on a bus and go where do you want to go and then i would play along really because i didn't want to be rude but you know, there's a lot of awkwardness around um around sight loss from the public and also there's a changing relationship with family and friends how you know particularly if you're being somebody who's really keen on giving and you know you're no longer in that kind of giving position you feel like you're a taker you know like there's a strive for independence but really what you have to learn when you have sight loss is how to be dependent and that's really tough it can change relationships um or if you're like the man of the house, you know, man of the house, then you feel like you're a hunter gatherer and maybe that has been taken away from you because you feel emasculated in some way that you can't do that role. So a changing perception of self and the relationship with friends and family. So in all of these ways, uh, sight loss impacted on people. And uh, that led me to uh, identify five stages of sight loss. And um, this is really important, like the, the, the Well Discover Wellbeing course is based around these five stages of sight loss. 
And uh, so the first is uh, is diagnosis, where there's a shock and the panic, disbelief, you know, fear of future, a really difficult stage, you know, and like around my own diagnosis, I can I can really relate to that. Um, and then there's a stage where it's a keep calm and carry on. And this is a stage where people try and hold on to, to normalities uh, as long as they can, maybe by not telling people about the diagnosis, maybe by um, not using the low vision aids that they've been given or like you know hiding the stick you know in a handbag or only bringing it out of your rucksack when you you know you're trying to ask somebody about the bus number um so just really trying to keep life going as long as as normal as possible and then there's a third stage which is the point of impact where the sight loss impacts on your life so much that you cannot lead your life as normal so perhaps that's when you lose your driving license perhaps it's where you can't find your way to the shop anymore without using your cane or perhaps it's about uh, not being able to do the knitting that you once loved or you know it could be any point of impact that uh, that happens and that often triggers uh, a real engagement with the low vision age because you realize that you can't carry on hiding or going without you need to be able to have a, a stick or a guide dog or 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 the you know, low vision aids around the house to really you maximize what you can do your functionality and then there's a kind of fifth stage which is like a new normal where life becomes you kind of reconnect with yourself and assimilate what's happened to you and you kind of find a new way of being in the world but this is not linear right so um it can have made it sound like it's all pretty neat you do this and this and this and this but it's not it's it's cyclical so um for example the point of impact can happen right at diagnosis if you're told at when you're in your diagnosis you can't drive then you're going to have wham uh, you know boom it's like not only the shock of the diagnosis but a huge point of impact and that's really really tough to deal with or it might be delayed in that uh, you you maybe have an intimate partner that you're you know really looks after you and is is you know you're, you have a wonderful relationship with and it's only maybe when something happens to them that you suddenly realize there's a point of impact for you that you can't carry on as you did before so um it, it can happen anytime and even for somebody like me who's very much into a new normal um like last week was my daughter's graduation in cambridge and that took me to a point of impact where sight loss became a real issue for me again and i, I really struggled mentally to recover from that because i'm so used to being like i, I can get around here and I, it's almost it's almost like I'm not disabled, but being in that really strange, busy situation made me realize, oh, bugger, pardon my wish, you know, I can't, I, I am really disabled. I can't do this, you know, the, uh, you know, so, so the, the point of impact can, can hit you at any time. And, you know, there's a reaction to that to be understood. So, of course, sight loss impacts on mental health of course it does but we're not good at, at um i kind of admitting that and talking about it and i think like macmillan cancer they they have this sewn up because you know if you had a diagnosis of cancer you'd be like 
what what support do you want to talk to somebody but we're not really good at acknowledging that so um one of the pieces of work that we had to do around uh, emotional support was with rnib in terms of defining what support is there and there are kind of tiers of support so tier zero which is a kind of new addition to the tiers is the kind of like you know things that are kind of helpful in your life cult your cultural resources what do you like to do like your faith maybe or your choir or um or maybe you know self-help materials maybe there's uh, um online stuff uh, that that is helpful to you so all of that kind of things that are you find joy in is you know be tier zero stuff and um, tier one would be the um, things like the eye clinic liaison officers there's are like listening services where you know you just want somebody to talk through things with these are really helpful as well tier two would be for like counseling specialist counseling and i'm saying specialist here because um one of the other strands of the work that i've been doing is training counselors to work with people with sight loss because there are particular issues that you have of somebody with sight loss that counselors need to know about to be able to go there because sometimes they won't go there if they don't feel confident in understanding what, what's really going on um and then there's a, a third sort of tier where it's more like acute mental health support so we've you know it, uh, which is maybe triggered by by gps and things so there's different people need different support at different points of the journey and um one of the things that is uh, one of the trends now in the the vi sector uh, the vi sector charity partnership is to be a move towards asking those who work with people with sight loss to be checking in about their mental health and to be asking them about it and um what I'm delighted about this to be involved with, with is the Discover Wellbeing course. So I think uh, Retina UK have really been ahead of the game here because what they've done is they've, as we're beginning now to talk about mental health, they've produced a resource which is kind of sits between tier zero and tier one, kind of really uh, something that you can do by yourself or you can have it supported as well. But Denise will tell you more about that. Um, but it's a wonderful resource. Uh, for supporting your mental health. So am I, my am I parting is I'm aware of time, I'm gonna stop now, but um, I think I want to say to you, right, uh, yes, acknowledge, pay attention to how you're feeling. And it's not weakness, it's not, uh, you know, you have to really foster your well-being. And um, as I say, this course, the Discover Wellbeing is a wonderful, rich resource to draw on. So thank you so much for listening, and I will pass you over to uh, the wonderful John Manning. Hello. Thank you, Mari. Um, I wanted to start by asking everybody a bit of a question. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming, because I know trains and stuff have been a bit of a nightmare today. So anyone online as well, welcome and anyone who may be attempted to come in face to face but ended up online because of the disruptions, thank you. Um, one thing I wanted to start by asking was, has anyone ever dropped anything in their house or when they're out and about and it's almost completely ruined their day? Anyone ever done that? Maybe you go tell your friends, work colleagues, this horrible thing happened. Um, has anyone ever done the same but they've kind of picked it up and got on with their day and it's not really had too much of an impact? Everyone had both of those types of experiences? 
So, my name's John. Um, I am the, the founder of an organization uh, called Arthur Ellis. They're named after my granddads. Um, Granddad Arthur died just before I was born. Ellis had something called schizoaffective disorder, apart from an incredibly frightening word. Uh, does, anyone else, does anyone know what that means? What it, where it comes from or derives from? Schizophrenia, yeah, yeah. So it's like a combination of bipolar and schizophrenia. So early 70s, West Yorkshire, his behavior wasn't really understood and people around him didn't know what to do to support him. So unfortunately, Ellis spent the next sort of 35, 36 years in an institute. So I, I found out about this um, when I was discovering a little bit more about my own mental health. This was about six years ago or so. And I'd been in, I don't know if anyone has tried to access mental health services before, but mental health awareness started in 2007 or so, really it started then. Been a huge influx of people talking about mental health, which is amazing. Um, but, there's a but with this, um, there's about 500,000 GP appointments every single day now for mental health related issues. Um, that's across the country. So in your work, if you could imagine you have 500,000 more clients every day, it, there, there begins to be a little bit of a funnel that gets created. And then we're seeing some waiting lists uh, across, the, across the industry. And some of these waiting lists are I was in a waiting list myself for about four years, and I'm sure that you, know, you guys are very familiar with going to the doctors and trying to get an appointment. You don't really get an appointment with anticipating that you're going to need some help in, a, in six months' time. You need, you need the help there and then. So I wanted to try and tackle that issue, so I, I set up Arthur Ellis, and there's a series of businesses that feed profit into a one-to-one -one service for children. That's how Arthur Ellis is structured. And we're now seeing about 60 children a day. Uh, we've got 40 practitioners uh, of different levels of so psychology, clinical psychology, um, special educational needs, disabilities, that sort of thing. And our aim is to see everybody that's referred to us within a week. So I don't know how old I am now. How old am I? 31. So when I was 26 or so, 25, I was in this waiting list and all I needed to know was what was going on with me, like what, what was my behaviour um, doing and, and why am I doing this? And I was lucky enough to be able to go to the Priory. Anyone heard of the Priory? Super fancy place. Yeah, <laughs> celebrities, Russell Brand and them lot. So I didn't see anybody, got no gossip. They stagger their appointments because they're used to the clientele. Um, but from being on a waiting list for four years to being welcomed into a say clinic or offices, whatever, it, whatever term you want to use for it. But I was offered a coffee, the receptionist talked to me and spent time talking to me. The psychiatrist that I saw spent an extra 10 minutes explaining what was going on with me. And in that appointment, I was diagnosed with something called bipolar disorder. So I feel like I'm at Alcoholics Anonymous. I, 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 my name is John and I don't have a sight loss condition. Um, and going through Mari's research in quite a lot of depth, one of the things or one of the trends that came out of that was that the, the inherited sight loss community need to have support from the inherited sight loss community. It's so important that, um, that there's this connection 
with what you're going going through. And I, I kind of had something similar in that if somebody had had a bad day and I told them that I was bipolar, then they would say, oh yeah, I totally understand. When really they haven't got a clue what it's all about. And people saying that they understand when they don't, I don't know if you guys have ever had that, but I find that one of the most frustrating things in the world. So I didn't want to do that when we were creating this, these courses, this resource. Um, so what we did was got together a variety of different focus groups. We thought about the different elements of life that might be interrupted by inherited sight loss at so the journey or the, the stages of the journey that Mari alluded to diagnosis, keep calm and carry on point of impact coming out a new normal. Did it all five. <laughs> so, um, so, we established kind of three main areas, early stages, which was the early onset. So there, there might still be a lot of vision, there might still be a lot of hearing, but that you may, you may have found out that you've got the gene or just been diagnosed, so not really had too much sight loss just yet. There's then living with change, which is designed more for the advanced stages. So maybe there's not a lot of sight loss at all. And then supporting others which is for friends, family, so that not only do we get the individual in a place where they're able to really support themselves, but everyone surrounding them are also on the same page. So the process of creating this was really driven by everybody within those areas. We did different focus groups. We spoke to a variety of different people. Um, each meeting was around a couple of hours, I think, Denise, it was a couple of hours for each, each meeting with these people. And it established this incredible resource. So one of the things that I wanted to talk through and, and add on to what Mari was saying was where this actually sits and what its purpose is. And by that, I wanted to go through the difference between well-being and mental health, because there's so much terminology that's used in this area, wellness, well-being, um, mental fitness, and there's so many different things. So I just wanted to keep it nice and simple and just go through the difference between two. So well-being is how comfortable, happy and healthy we are. It's not necessarily how we wake up and feel on that given day. It's quite a long-term thing. It's something to strive for. Mental health is a state of our well-being. So mental health is directly impacted by how our well-being is. And mental health determines how we deal with particular situations, whether we let dropping a glass on the floor ruin our day or not, and those sorts of things. So if our well-being's in a really good place, we can drop anything and we'll just clean it up and we'll get on with our day. Don't, maybe not everything. There's certain things we really don't want to drop. But if our well-being isn't in a great place and we drop something, then it's going to have a knock-on effect to how we react and how, on our behaviour. So well-being is structured in five particular areas of behaviour. Mari mentioned a few things like choirs that you might be involved in or walks that you might do, but they go into different categories of behaviour. So the first one is move. And that's anything that we do for physical exercise that isn't attached to a really like stressy goal. So training for a marathon, for example, has a different stress level to going for a lunchtime walk. So it's like the lunchtime walk kind of things or choosing the, choosing the stairs rather than escalator or anything like that. That has a massive impact on our mental health. If you've got, um, if you've got a background in fitness or anything like that, or you've, you've known people, the, the, the physical benefits of it is brilliant, but it releases something called serotonin in our minds, and that helps us to stabilize our moods. So that helps if you, know, if you are gonna drop something, usually it's not planned, 
But if you are going to drop something, it's going to help you react in a much more healthy way. We've then got focus, which is anything that draws our attention to the present moment. So that could be cooking, gardening, having a bath and, or, or listening to music. It's typically those things that we describe as being therapeutic. You've just got any behaviors in your life that you would describe as being therapeutic. And that's because when we're drawing our attention to the present moment, we're giving ourselves a break from all of that future thinking or thinking about the future. And something like, for example, anxiety, the definition of it is uh, worry or nervousness around uncertain future events. I don't know about you, but pretty much everything in my future is uncertain. Um, and, you know, there, there's ways in which we can't necessarily avoid those, but we need to learn and build skills in dealing with it. So discover is the third one. That's all about learning new things, being curious. I fixed a tap in my house about six months ago, and I'm still telling everyone about it because I'm so proud of myself. Um, but learning those little things and whether it's a little bit of DIY or whether it's a new song on, a, on an instrument that you play, that's linked to boosting our confidence, our self-esteem and, and having pride in ourselves. Communicate is the fourth one and that's not necessarily just speaking to people because you can speak to people all day every day and you can still feel lonely, right? So it's actually our methods of communication. So anyone ever heard? Well, you probably know some people who are more passive aggressive and that's more described as like sarcasm. So do people know people who can be some sarcastic sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got aggressive, and we probably know people who are quite aggressive. Um, passive, which is often people like who are quite passive are described as doormats. So just say yes to everything and they don't really consider the impact that it has on them in the long term. And then assertive is where you're quite firm with what you're saying, you know what you're saying, you stand behind it and you can really make quite a positive impact. So it's the way that we communicate that's important and that's really changing with the introduction of different technologies. And then finally help, which is all about helping others. When we help somebody else, and it's quite interesting in, in Eastern cultures, I'm being for time, okay. In Eastern cultures, if they've had a horrendous day, well, let's, let's do a little bit of an experiment. If you've had a really bad day, and say it's like, well, it's Friday, isn't it? You've had a really, really long week. No, it's Saturday today. So it's Friday yesterday. You had a really, really long week. Really hot. You don't really want to do anything. You did plan to go to go, you know, go for a walk or go to the gym or something. But if that falls apart, what might you do instead? Anyone want to confess? Sorry, I heard something at the back. Pub, yeah, people simultaneously pub. <laughs> so we've got go to the pub, takeaway, for example. Um, could be a variety of things. My thing is I, I only ever get one order at KFC, and it's a family feast, and I only live by myself. So, but you, you do these things, right? You replace that positive behavior with something that is a little bit more negative. And that's kind of like communication. If we've got plans with social, uh, you know, a social event, and then throughout the focus groups, we realize the variety of things that get in the way of that purely because of the inherited sight loss condition, which could be lighting. It could be because it's winter, it's going to be naturally darker, so you don't want to go out. And it interrupts these well-being behaviors. That then has a knock-on impact to the state of your mental health and determines on how you're going to react if you drop that glass. So these things are all interconnected. But when we have one of those horrendous times, um, 
we typically do something for ourselves. So we might go to the pub, we might go have a takeaway, we might um, go to Lush and get a bath bomb and like, you know, do something for ourselves. But in Eastern cultures, if they've had a really awful day like that and they just can't stomach doing anything else, they will get home, drop their stuff, and they'll go back out and they will look for somebody else to help. So they will look to see if someone needs help crossing the road, packing their bags, carrying their shopping, in order to make them help themselves feel better. And that's the power of helping others, and that's our fifth behavior. And the reason why that happens is because when you do something good, without any expectation of return. So if you're thinking, I'll wash up and I'll get something back from it, then it doesn't really count. But if you're just gonna do something off your own back and do something for the good of it, dopamine and oxytocin are released. So dopamine is the reward hormone, it makes you happy, it sort of tells you that you've done a good job. And then oxytocin is the love hormone, the warm, fuzzy feeling that you get when you might stroke a pet, because I'm looking at two dogs and I really wanna stroke them, but I can't. So, what that also does is actually suppresses the release of cortisol. Anyone know what cortisol does? Stress, yes, yeah, a stress hormone, absolutely. Yeah, so it's an incredible thing. So what we've built this, these courses around in those different areas, early stages, living with change and supporting others, is to walk you through how you can get the most value from those different areas of behavior that I've talked through. Not necessarily just getting value on them, but considering that within life, there are going to be stumbling blocks. There are going to be changes that we come up against. And how do we navigate those in the best way possible to make sure that our well-being is still intact? So within the course, we've got around 10 different activities. So there's the practical elements of all of the really positive behaviors that you can do and build into your lives. We call those bananas. Um, it, makes it a little bit more lighthearted, a difficult subject. But it also, if you, if you think about having a banana or introducing a banana to your diet every day, are you gonna get un more unhealthy if you're gonna do that? Unless you're allergic or anything, like don't answer. Yeah, you're allergic. <laughs> Apple, whatever it might be. So, so if you're introducing something like that into your diet and you consistently have it every day, you're getting all of the nutrients, the minerals, the good energy, and that's what these behaviors do for us with dopamine, oxytocin, and the different things that we've mentioned that have a positive impact on our well-being and our mind. But if those drop off through a life event or a change, could even be a positive change, like a wedding. Have you ever seen a stress-free bride? I, I haven't. It's because it interrupts these behaviors that keep us in a really good place. So, the courses are structured around that to have a look at what positive behaviors do you have already? Which one of those out of the five might be a little bit more vulnerable? So are you more likely like me to sacrifice your pub quiz with your family for staying at home and drinking, for example? Um, so they're the sort of vulnerable behaviors that you really need to look out for. And then those replacement behaviors, like we said about the pub, takeaways, those sorts of things, we describe those as our donuts. So our bananas add to our well-being, and our donuts, if you replace your banana with a donut, if you have a donut every single day, what's gonna happen to you? Get fat, yeah, absolutely. You, 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 you end up becoming more and more unhealthy. At the, at the moment, at that moment, feels incredible, right? Everyone loves a donut, but steadily over time. So if you are to replace your pub 
with every evening of the week and it gets to that point, then that's not a very healthy thing. So it's not necessarily to feel guilty around those indulgences and those um, gratification kind of behaviors, but it's to be aware of them and to recognize when they're creeping in and for your family and friends to recognize when they're creeping in and to help you keep on a path. Sometimes just telling someone to go for a walk isn't enough and it can kind of be a little bit patronizing. So what we've also done is some additional tools and, and techniques which we've redesigned because typically psychology tools are in tables or graphs, not really something that's very helpful for this community. So we've rewritten tools within CBT, uh, within psychology, so that if those behaviors aren't enough and you need something extra that's gonna help you feel better, there are all of those tools available for you too. So I'm aware of time, I think I've probably gone over, but I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm personally very excited and, and very grateful to be involved in this. Um, reading Marie, Marie's research, the, the complete lack of support was, was quite apparent. Um, it has been for quite some time. And for somebody who has you know, gone for years and years trying to ask for help, but nothing being available. I understand that, but I don't necessarily understand it in your particular circumstances. But I'm really, really pleased that we've been able to develop something that can help and will help. So I would really encourage you to give it a go. I know that Denise is gonna walk you through the actual portal that it's on. And uh, I'm gonna be sticking around for a few hours as well. So if anyone's got any questions for me at all, then please feel free to ask and thank you, appreciate it. Hello, I feel as though coming up here and having a laptop in front of me, that I'm missing Davinda's, you know, I want some music, it's like, <laughs> need some music to get us going. So if you could just bear with me as I get the laptop up and running, that's okay. I'm not very good at multitasking. So what I want to do is I want to talk you through what we've actually developed to show you what Discover Wellbeing actually looks like. I had everything set up. What is it with technology? Davinda, where is he? <laughs> no, absolutely fine. Thank you, Matt. Okay, so what I wanted to do was just to come up and first of all, thank Mary and John for their, for, for being able, their expertise, being able to work with them on this project has been absolutely inspiring and a real adventure and, and a real learning. Um, so I really want to say a massive thank you to both of you for the support that you've given us at Retina UK and being able to pull this together. And um, it really is important. It's something that we've recognized for a long time with our community that of course, everything that you deal with, that you cope with, the day-to-day -day ups, downs, struggles, the wet floor signs that cause so many bruises, all of those things, you know, have an impact, you know, to, to think that um, getting the diagnosis that, you know, so many of you in the room and, and at home have had, for those of you who are family and friends, you know, your loved ones 
um, have experienced and the journey that that actually takes you on to think that that isn't going to have some sort of impact on your mental health, on your emotional well-being would be incredibly naive. Um, we did our survey back in 2019 and 92% of people who responded to that told us that there had been a negative impact on their emotional health because directly because of, of their sight loss. The survey that we've just run um, has come back with a very similar figure, which really was no surprise. So we thought it was so important that we needed to make a difference. Our wonderful fundraising team went out and was able to secure funding for the full project. And I want to show you what we've actually developed. So first of all, how do you find Discover Wellbeing? There's actually a section on our website. It will be linked from the main page, but retinauk.org.uk wellbeing. And this page is gonna explain a little bit about the courses that we've come up with. There's a video from both John and Mary, thanks very much. Um, again, explaining what some of the benefits of the courses actually are to you. And there's a link, of course, to the portal, Discover Wellbeing. We did recognize that actually one size doesn't fit all. So what we wanted to do was to come up with um, the, exactly the same way as we did the focus groups, talking to people at different stages of their journey. And um, the decision was made, actually, we needed to look at that in terms of the courses themselves. So what we did is we set up three courses. The first one is called Early Stages. Now, Early Stages is really for people, as it says on the tin, you know, if you've just been diagnosed, or perhaps, perhaps you haven't even had a diagnosis yet, but conditions actually run through the family, and you've noticed maybe a change in your sight, so there's concern about getting that diagnosis. Or perhaps, you have had a diagnosis for some time, but sight hasn't, hasn't deteriorated significantly, but you are particularly concerned and anxious about the future, then this course aims to under, help you understand that feeling of apprehension and take positive, practical steps to prepare you for the future. The next course is Living with Change. And this is really for people who, um, perhaps have been diagnosed for some time, that they are a little bit more advanced in their journey. And when we say advanced, that is absolutely down to how the person feels. It could be that actually their sight has a deterioration has advanced to the point where they have maybe light perception only. Or it could be that they still have some very useful vision, but there's been an impact, a point of impact, as Mary talked about, that has changed something for them at the moment. So the, that, life, that life change, the way they're having to adapt, it's something that they're in right now that they're really get, getting anxious about. So this course um, is really about understanding the feelings of loss and helping people to adapt to that reduction in sight and take practical steps to continue living a positive life. I just want to share, those are the two courses really for people who are living with sight loss. And I just want to share a couple of quotes that we actually received from um, community members when they were completing the survey. And the first is really sort of somebody around the early stages. And they said that immediately, immediately after diagnosis, 
all of the uncertainty concerning the future, my emotional well-being just completely took a dive. And for somebody that was a little bit further on, they said, I'm a really positive person, but even small incidents which remind me that I'm not as free as I used to be to do what I want, that sort of thing brings a real loss of, uh, sense of loss and frustration. And these are the people that we're really aiming this, these courses for. But we didn't forget about families and friends. It's so important that you guys aren't forgotten. So we wanted to create a course that is about supporting others. That's about learning practical skills and accessing tools to look after you. For, you know when you get on an aeroplane and they always say to you, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on before you put on anybody else's. But it's true, you know, you've got to look after your own well-being first. Making sure that these tools were something that could really work for you to, to, to get you to just check in with yourself and see how you're doing. And also to teach you some really practical um, skills, tools, some really good understanding, things to look out for with your loved one that you can actually work through together. Help you to recognize when maybe their, their well-being is taking a slightly negative turn. So the courses, I would really encourage you, all of you, to actually have a look at. We had another quote in our, our survey that came through from someone um, who said, mental health isn't just an issue for the person with RP. It can affect other family members too. No health professional has ever inquired about how my sight loss has impacted members of my family. It, expect, it seems that they're just expected to cope. Well, we say, no, you're not. We're here to support you. At the moment, this is an online service. Um, you do need to have access to the internet. Uh, we we may actually look at ways in which we can take it offline in the future, but at the moment, um, we would encourage you, if you can, to try and get online. The other thing that the page talks about is accessing support. And what we recognized is, whilst these courses are available for anybody to get on there and have a go on their own, in their own time, might be sat at home at a laptop, it might be on an iPad, it might be on your mobile phone while you're going for that walk. John, good, a good banana behavior. Um, it can be any of those things. But for some people, they might want to have someone just to talk through these things with. So what we wanted to do was train up a great team of uh, wellbeing volunteers. Uh, and John's provided lots of, of training for the, for the volunteers to equip them to be able to guide, encourage, and support somebody as they're actually going through the course that they choose to do. They're not counselors. This isn't about counseling. This is taking a couple of steps back from that. This is about normalizing the conversation. It's about proactively providing you with, with skills, with tools, with understanding, so to empower you to, to actually recognize when things are taking a negative turn. And what we want to do is to avoid the point where people feel the way that Mary did. You know, she openly talked about going into that deep depression. If we can work on this earlier in the journey, when you're still feeling relatively well, 
then one of the things we hope is that when maybe in six months time or six weeks time if you find that you're having not just a bad day but actually a bad few days that actually things are starting to really get on top of you that you can go back and revisit the things that you've done within this course look back at the tools that John spoke about and see well what's the difference what's missing now that I was doing then and maybe be able to to recognize that and reintroduce some of those really good behaviors so let's have a look at what the portal looks like for those of you for me to be able to just talk that through so first of all we've made this the system as, as simple as possible we have not only involved the community in the focus groups but also in accessibility testing to make sure that the service is actually going to work for everyone so it takes you through to when you click on the link it'll take you through to this welcome page and there's an option to register it's a very straightforward registration process in that we ask for no more than your name first name last name email we do ask you to tick a box just to confirm that you're happy for us to collect your data and then just to choose a password of your choice once you've actually registered then in future you can you can save the password there's a system you know if the system allows you to save that password it makes logging in in the future nice and easy which I thought I'd asked it to remember but never mind it's not easy to type when you're holding a bit of paper It is, I know, but I hope it's building good suspense. Okay, and when we log in, it's going to take us back to the welcome page. John has very kindly done another video on there just to explain more about the course. If you scroll down, you then get the option of the three courses that are available to you, and you can choose which one you think is most suitable for you. Underneath that, there's a button where you can go and have a look at our frequently asked questions. There's lots of information in there to um, let you know about everything from downloading the um, activities, uh, you know, sort of questions maybe around the course and, and how we decided to, to sort of start this piece of work and things like that. There's the option for the assisted journey and that's for you to choose to have a volunteer and get more support. And that's going to take you back into our page at Retina UK website that talks about our other services that we offer. If we just choose one of them, I'm going to click on the early stages and it will take you through. Every course will start and end with a questionnaire. And the questionnaire is really just to assess how you're thinking and feeling both at the beginning and the end. And that really just helps us to understand how these modules, how the course is actually helping and supporting you. So once you've completed the questionnaire, it will then take you through all of the steps that Mary and John have talked about, from diagnosis, keep calm and carry on, point of impact, coming out and the new normal. And in each of those modules are made up and structured in exactly the same way. So for example, if we go into diagnosis, which is the first module, 
it will have some information about, the, about this particular um, area of the course. It will have a video in which you'll hear John imparting his wisdom. Oh, and <laughs> Not at all. And everybody who's heard it says it's really, your, your voice is so easy to listen to, John. It's, uh, it's lots of really good information in there. And what he does do is also explain the activities that are actually take part within this module. You scroll down, it then gives the activities that have been discussed and allows you to actually download those into a Word document that you can actually use, you can play with, you can add your thoughts, your feelings and save that document so you can come back to it later on. At the bottom of the screen there's a help that says more help in a big pink button and at any point, even if you didn't decide to do it at the very beginning, you can choose to click that and it just asks you to, to let us know if you want the help and support of one of our wellbeing volunteers. You can choose to do that at any point through the process. And that's pretty much how we're working with the, with the courses. We really want to make sure that they encourage, empower you, support you, guide you, and really help you to get to grips with your, your well-being in, in a positive way, you know, for it to really make a difference when those dark days come around that actually there's some really good behaviours that you can go back to, that you can grab hold of and, and, and practice and hopefully make a difference. There may be some of you sitting in the audience today that thinks, oh, do you know, this is not for me. You know, it's, I, I don't do that fluffy stuff. That's not for me. I'd ask you to be open-minded. There may be some in the audience that have come across well-being numerous times and I've found some really good techniques that help you. It's worth giving this a go and having a look. Please engage with it. And even if you have a look at it and you think, Do you know, it's not for me right at the moment, there may be somebody that you know, somebody that you're talking to in conversation, that it actually turns, it'll be really helpful for that individual. Please pass on the information and let them know. I'd like to invite John and Mary back up to the stage, and if you've got any questions at all, please do just, just raise a hand. Are there any questions at all? Yeah, we've got some questions um, from those online. Um, I think the first one is, I think my partner might be struggling with their well-being, but I don't know how to talk to them about it or start the conversation. Do you have any advice? Mary, do you want to take that one? I think it's oh. great that you're noticing <coughs> that <coughs> this is happening. And uh, certainly I would uh, try and uh, open up the conversation saying, hey, I've noticed that recently you've been, you know, whatever. Um, I'm wondering how you're feeling about things. Do you want to, would it be helpful to talk to me about it or do you want to talk to somebody else about it? Looks like you might be carrying things or, or something like that. But definitely try and, uh, you know, I don't know, it, it, try and open up some space or, or invite them to talk to somebody that they feel because sometimes they don't want to burden friends and family with how they're feeling that's you know i've, I've counseled many 
blind and partially sighted people and that's the sense they don't want to give it to you they you know they love you or care for you so even to invite them to speak to somebody else and definitely for having a look at this course this is a, a kind of really nice way saying hey i heard about this retina course you know you know why don't you have a look at it <laughs> so yeah that's that would be my kind of suggestions but you know yes hope that's helpful john is there anything to add yeah i'd, I'd add it from from somebody who's very familiar with trying to hide the way I'm feeling from people. Um, sometimes you don't actually, you, you might not be able to talk to them at, at all if they're not ready to. Um, unfortunately, you can't force people to tell you what's going on uh, unless you've got a really effective light that you can shine in their face in an interrogation room. But um, one of the things that I would, I would say, rather than having that conversation if they're not ready, is just go through go through even the, the first module of the course, which will talk you through all of the areas of well-being, and just try and identify which one for them has stopped, and then just steadily try and encourage them to to get to get to do that that singular one. Um, for example, I think there was a there was a story of a, a group of men who all had depression and it was they'd gone through therapy and different things and they would they kind of it was a recurring issue they they never seemed to get over that cloud of, of depression around them and they all started as part of their therapy working on an allotment and that lifted their depression it wasn't necessarily the talking therapies or anything like that so try and identify something that they might have done previously and encourage them to specifically do that or maybe suggest doing it together until it's re that that particular positive behaviour is rebuilt in their life. Thank you. Um, I've got another one. If there are none from the floor, um, that's also come in. Um, I'm a parent of a child with sight loss. Is this resource suitable for them? Um, we don't have an age, but uh, perhaps you could just give an indication of of ages that it might be suitable for. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we haven't we haven't done any testing yet in terms of like what what is the lowest age that would be appropriate because it's so variable with different children at different stages. Um, but I would say starting at 15, 16, give it a go. But then we would look to test it from sort of 12 onwards. So if they're secondary school, then I would say give it a go. Um, but it might be that if they're between 12 and 15 or 16, then doing it with them might be a bit better so that if there's if, if we say dopamine in one of the videos for example there's a, a backup explanation of it from the parent so yeah do it together that'd be great thank you i'd definitely say you know for the parents as well sort of the supporting others um course would be a really good place to to look as well because it's going to provide them with the tools and techniques to sort of start those you know those conversations and and maybe introduce even if the child isn't ready to, to sort of go through the course if they're at a younger age it might just give mum and dad some one looking after themselves because you know you're always worried if, if it's your child aren't you you know you, you want to take it away and you know you'd rather it was me and not them but but it, it will open up ways to actually have those conversations mary anything to add yeah no i was just going to say that too that the supporting others one might be helpful for the parents <clears throat> yeah it's it is really tough and especially when it's your beloved child and you know i know as a parent myself like uh you know when the girls were uh tested my three daughters were all tested for it there was that sense of uh, of 
carrying yourself, the own kind of like worry and fear for them. So I think perhaps the supporting others uh, part on the website might be helpful. But yes, thinking of you. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any other questions at all? A couple in the room. Sorry. Just bringing the mics to you. Sorry. Hello, um, I wanted to say thank you to both John and Mary for sharing their stories. Um, I identified with everything that Mary said. Um, my journey sounds identical, um, apart from the fact that when I had my diagnosis, I found it reassuring um, because I had been quite bewildered by things that didn't make sense. So the diagnosis made a lot of sense. I also didn't have much time um, to get to terms with it because I had young children, one of whom went to school the following day and said, guess what? Mummy's lost her driving license. <laughs> so um, that was, I, I wanted to ask about your um, volunteers and whether they need to be counsellors or whether some or all of them have sight loss. Um, could you tell us a bit more about how they were rec recruited, please? I can. Um, but from within our own, own teams, um, we've gone out and, and looked at um, individuals that have got the skills that we think are right. And that's not, in, in fairness, they're not counsellors. It's not, it's not having a counselling background. But all of the team are living with our conditions themselves. So a, a genuine understanding, um, you know, about the days, the ups and downs, you know, many of them have experienced the, you know, the difficulties um, and, and the darker days, you know, going through their own journey and have found ways coming out the other side. So it's very much lived experience rather than the counselling. As I said, this is not to replace counselling. Um, the, the whole idea with this is really to sort of help people with early intervention. It's about trying to um, understand and recognize as your as your well-being is taking a, a slide it's taking a dip so we can start to put the actions back in place to stop us spiraling into that um, state of ang higher anxiety and deep depression of course some people will still experience those things you know it's not it's not wrong it's not it's just we're trying to avoid the pitfalls for some people but what we hope is if less people are actually getting to that point then the wait, wait times for services which we know are really long hopefully they'll be reduced and people can get the help that they want quicker so we are we are focusing very much on early stages and with an amazing team that are all living with uh, our conditions themselves Anything else? Was there another question in the room? Hi, hi. Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you. Um, I'm in the wellbeing uh, sector as well, and I'm blind. And it is, it's so refreshing to see that this is coming more mainstream. Um, and in the sector, I only wish we had something like this 25 years ago when I was younger. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. Um, secondly, I, it's a question to Mary, really. Um, did you find that your partner struggled a lot with um, your, you know, you, you sight deteriorating and getting worse? And if he, they did, 
how did you manage that? Um, I only say it because I seem to be doing a lot better than my husband. <laughs> um, I've come to terms with it a lot better. I'm dealing with it a lot better. And I mean, it could be that I'm a lot more used to the this kind of um, approach. But I do notice that he is um, struggling a lot with me now losing my sight and being a blind person. So how did you find that? And how would you suggest I work with him? Wow, yeah, I, that really, that resonates with me. Uh, so in, initially, my husband was uh, almost like overprotective of me. He would like, I wasn't to do anything, you know, and I was kind of wrapped in cotton wool. And then he got to the stage where he was kind of underprotective and like, oh, you can do that. And that we didn't quite ever strike the, the right balance, I think. But I think it is really hard for partners and it's hard for you as as their partner as well you know um, I think perhaps this resource might be a good place of a kind of you know looking you know inviting them to have a look at it on online and uh, to see if it's got any help from but it is really hard to strike the balance sometimes relationships don't make it and um through this the challenges of of sight loss and um, that adds kind of because it adds more pressure into relationships so yeah it's good that you're recognizing it and and uh, yeah, I wish you so, so much of the best. And it sounds like you've got a wonderful attitude and your strength and resilience might be kind of like helped your, your yeah. partner. But yeah, have a look at the, I think this might be an interesting resource to point them to. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much. you. Thank you. I definitely echo that. I think I think in terms of the, you know, sort of the supporting others course, but, you know, there are other services that we offer. And the one thing I would say is, you know, our wonderful helplines, both email and telephone are there. And again, they're manned by people that are living with our conditions and they're open to families. You know, if somebody just wants to talk things through. And often we find that family members, um, they don't talk to their partner because they're worried about upsetting them. Whereas our helplines, if you're talking to a stranger, it's sort of a safe place, isn't it? You can, you can talk in, about what it is is on your mind without worrying about upsetting the, the person that you love. So, you know, that is a, a resource that's open to him as well. Thank you. Any other questions at all? Yes, so can we have a mic just down at the front here? Could you raise your hand again? Hello, Dr. Mary. Um, I paid attention when you said uh, that you had a couple of dark years adapting. And uh, you also said that you came from an arts background. That's very interesting. I want to ask you, for me at least, my dark years were when I had to uh, think about re resetting my skill sets or resetting myself, as I think that what we do almost all of the time defines us, our, our identity, I think. And those darkies for me were thinking, maybe if I can't see what I'm doing anymore, I'm not myself anymore. I don't know if that makes sense to you. And after those years, I came to the conclusion that I had to adapt to keep on going and doing what I do, regardless of my sight. And things started changing for good. And now I'm very, very confident about myself again. So my question is, do you think it's important to keep our identity on focus as we struggle through the darkness of adapting to our sight loss? 
or is it good to see if there are options to see if we are good at something else also and, and not hold too much to the visual side of our skills? Wow, what a question. That is marvelous. And um, it speaks to one of the key things for, for, for people who are, you know, going through sight loss journey is that changing identity. And for, for uh, like, as yourself, you said, you know, if you're working with the visual arts and you know you're losing your sight, that's a real kind of place of fear and darkness because it's like who am i now that i can't see who, who am i so for me it was losing my job as a teacher i was like who am i now you know i'm not miss whoever anymore I, i'm just you know i'm retired or, or washed up but i think what in hindsight what i have learned over the course of the past kind of 20 odd years is like i would never have imagined that life would be like it is now i would never have seen the possibilities that i would be here talking to you guys uh you know being dr thurston and you know like being an expert in something you know because i was just a primary teacher i wasn't you know i wasn't interested in in kind of academia so i'm an accidental academic and I think there's something about us we I've reconnected with my creativity in a different way and I still I think I've reconnected also with my love of the visual arts but I'm it's been a really long and it's not quite finished yet journey of readjustment so I think what you've said is like yes there's something about your identity that you do kind of grieve over as it changes but then having a kind of openness to what you don't know yet will unfold. It's like often we jump ship from things that we love pretty early on because we think, how can we do that? You know, how, how, how are we going to be able to do that? But as we kind of um, get to kind of new normal, we, we, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a kind of um, reconnecting with our own internal resources and sometimes they come back. <laughs> Not that you'll ever that you'll see in the same way, but something else kind of emerges. So yeah, I think, I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It's a very rambly answer, but I do absolutely know what you're speaking of. And, um, and I think just be open to the possibilities of, of anything, you know, yeah, thank you. I think that's all we've got time for, but I hope you've um, you've enjoyed listening and that actually you'll go back and log in to uh, Discover Wellbeing and um, see what you think of the courses and please, you know, use them. Call us if you've got any questions and spread the word. Thanks very much. What an amazing resource that is. Um, I've had a good look through it myself. Um, highly, highly recommend it. So please do take a look. So the final session of our conference for the year, um, we're going to take a look at, um, at Retin UK, the progress we've made against our two, um, the main pillars of, of the work that we do. So hope for tomorrow, um, the search and delivery for treatments and living for today. Um, the provision of support and information. So to deliver this session, I welcome again, Tina Garvey. Seems I haven't got a DJ-like start, I'd just like to thank you for that very warm welcome. Um,
Um, I think it, before I start, it'd be really remiss of me um, not to let you know that due to the insight that this community gave us, we managed to get this project, Discover Wellbeing, absolutely fully funded from private sources and trusts and foundations, which was an incredible job by our hardworking uh, fundraising team and the team that pulls together all the analysis. So I just thought that was a very important point that this amazing resource has come from information that you gave us and that's why your feedback is so important. So as we've spoken about today, Retina UK is the only organisation in the UK that funds research into the search for treatments and support for the IRD community exclusively. And I'm privileged to give you an update on where we are now and the insight uh, that you have given us over the last four years and how that's impacted. I think it's also important at this point to say that over 1,800 of, uh, members of our community have fed back to us over the four years, and that helps us shape this organisation. What we do for you and where you can access this support and guidance for you and your families. I want to take just a few short moments, and it will be, it will be relatively short, I promise you, to give you an update on what we're doing and what is available to you, and it's all based on the feedback that you have given us. What we do is we promote the search to find the causes and the treatments for inherited sight loss. And we know that from our insight survey that over half of you, I'm throwing things around now, excuse me, I've dropped the pen. Just rejected it there. We know from our insight survey that over half of you feel our most activity is funding research and search for treatments. And that's something that we're gonna talk about. But we are a charity, as Matt quite rightly says, that's based on two main pillars of work. Hope for tomorrow, that's the search and the delivery of treatments, and also living to today. The support and information on day-to-day -day living and the progress of the amazing research that goes on all of the time. Despite the huge challenges and the setbacks that the pandemic has presented. I'd just like to take a moment and note and thank all of our scientists and research teams and our research volunteers that have carried on working in extremely difficult conditions and are still applying an amazing amount of effort to regain the momentum that we have lost. Retina UK started as a volunteer-led organisation that existed to find treatments, but what they found in addition is kinmanship, peer support and contact. As I said, we know from our insight survey that over half of you think our most important activity is funding that search for treatment. And this is something that we take extremely seriously. In fact, 56% of you said you would like the focus should be on funding and promoting the search for causes and treatments for inherited sight loss. The remainder was split more or less equally between find, providing information and support to help people manage their inherited sight loss, around 23%, and increasing society's understanding of the needs of people with inherited sight loss, around 21%. People who've had their diagnosis for more than 20 years were more likely to select a research focus compared with those diagnosed more recently, 60% compared with 45%. And that's also true of anyone aged over 55. While all groups prioritise research, there were some that put more emphasis on information and support than on increasing society's understanding of sight loss. And this tended to be with people who were diagnosed less than 20 years ago, 
those with, were not yet site loss registered, and those who said that they were not managing with their site loss well. And I think that's understandable within these groups. After a lapse in activity in research generally caused by the pandemic, the Association of Medical Charities stated it would take at least four and a half years to recover from the pandemic. And we are committed to funding the most innovative and exciting science on the road to treatments. And we will be building a strategy to make sure we do exactly this. And there will be three main themes and work programs that we will be focusing on to drive the very best in research. The first is the road to treatment. This will include all projects that will progress the development of therapeutic approaches, including basic science onwards from the understanding of disease mechanisms with a view to identifying a therapeutic target to projects much further along the transition, translational pathway. As we know, research becomes very, more and more expensive, which is very unfortunate, the nearer to treatment it gets. Graduating from the basic science and lab work to working models through clinical trials in people. For example, Luxterna that we've heard about today, the recently approved genetic therapy for RPE65 took approximately 25 years from proof of concept and tens upon tens of millions of pounds to bring that idea to fruition. We at Retina UK are unlikely to ever be able to afford clinical trials but we are best placed to support the whole process from lab where we can reasonably help financially to helping the clinical trial recruitment and supporting through the NICE process. And we are small but mighty in this regard. With your insight and willingness to share and support the organisation, we were able to help the NICE, pre NICE process not only approve Luxterna against the odds I may add, but in record time. Retina UK was cited no less than 16 times, and that's because we were armed with the real life impact of the condition and what treatment means to the most important people, the potential patients. Our second theme will be around genomics, to include any study of unsolved cases, variation finding, etc. And much to Kate's dismay, I call it shy genes, but I think everyone understands what I mean when I say that. And this does overlap into the road for treatment, but is incredibly important on the road to treatment. For the last seven years, Retin UK has supported the collaboration which we helped found, the UK RDC, which is a top institutions in the UK helping to get everybody a genetic diagnosis, even those with those shy genes and those yet to be discovered. And with the help of Retin UK, there is now real collaboration and information sharing and this means that hundreds of families now have their genetic answers, allowing them a host of informed choices and a greater chance of treatment than ever before. And our third theme will be the foundations of research. This will include the development of research tools and data sets, things like natural history studies and development of disease models. Technology development, including novel methods of viewing and analyzing the retina, and innovation and enterprise in novel, novel approaches to the IRD challenges. This area is designed to help the foundations of searching for treatments, from imaging tools to uh, epidemiology and health projects. We know the importance, especially in rare conditions, the, the, sorry, the importance of information and having all the information that you need. We have previously founded the IRD Counts Consortium, which helped the community globally have all of the epidemiology and health economic information attached to the disease. 
so they can now influence decision makers and funders to get the very best possible results for the IRD community much, much quicker. We may not always be funding projects in all areas, but that is our target to reach. We need your support now more than ever to fund all of this vital research. We have found from our insight that Retin UK was the top source of research information for respondents, with more than two thirds, 70% of those who knew about research citing the charity as the source. Retin UK was more than twice as likely to be mentioned as the next highest source, which was the ophthalmologists at 27%. Awareness of research is nearly twice as high among those who are in contact with Retin UK. We hold regular information days, and I would urge you to have a look on our website for upcoming webinars on a whole range of subjects, as well as recordings of recent webinars on everything from optogenetics to mini retina to medical imaging to condition-specific scientific talks. Over 500 of you have already joined us for these webinars, and these events have a 99% satisfaction rate, so I can guarantee they'll be carrying on. More than half 54% were aware of clinical research into their type of sight loss, and 20% have participated in research. And as a result of your feedback, we had an excellent session this morning specifically on clinical research. As I said, Retina UK is the top source of research information, and as in 2019, awareness of research is much higher amongst those who have engaged with Retina UK compared with those who have not. As we are the main source of information on research, science developments and clinical trials, and the wonderful team are committing to continuing this service for you. And we are looking at launching a brand new website early in the next year to improve your experience even more. And you can gain all of the information you need there. Meanwhile, all of the webinars and information are available on our current site, retinauk.org.uk, or if you'd prefer to speak to one of our friendly volunteers, the helpline is always on hand. And there are some really exciting treatment approaches on the horizon. Several genetic therapies targeting specific genes and mutations have reached clinical, uh, clinical testing and are starting to generate really encouraging results. These include gene replacement therapies that work along the similar lines to Luxterna, as well as cutting edge gene editing and RNA therapies. It's so important that our community can access genetic testing so that they are poised to make the most of any opportunities that these potential treatments present. Meanwhile, we're also starting to see so-called gene agnostic treatments, which could potentially be effective no matter what the underlying genetic fault emerge, sorry, are starting to emerge from the development pipeline. These include cell-based therapies that aim to provide nourishment and support to the retina, as well as strategies like optogenetics that enable particular types of retinal cells unaffected by disease to take over the light detection from the degenerated photoreceptors. There are small, sorry, novel small molecule drugs being employed to clear toxins from the retina and even confer, confer light sensing abilities to unaffected cells. And researchers are also exploring a potential drugs already in use for lots of other conditions from cancer to alcoholism to see if they could be of help. Retina UK has invested more than 17 million pounds into cutting edge research since the charity was founded in 1976. We are proud to support some of the best scientists and clinicians in the field of ophthalmology and genetics, and we are always committed to driving forward high research, 
sorry, high quality research into causes and treatments. We are determined to build on the progress that has already been made, maintaining momentum and driving forward the best and the most promising research. We want to solve the problem of inherited retinal dystrophies and we want to find those possible treatments. Our ability to, to do so depends entirely on the contributions that we receive from all of our fantastic supporters. And we are currently funding a range of exciting projects and programmes, all of which aim to enhance our understanding of inherited sight loss and inform the development of treatments for the estimated 2 million people affected worldwide. Every year, our trustees make difficult decisions about which new projects we should fund within our limited resources. And we are determined to build on the progress that has already been made, maintaining momentum and driving forward only the best and the most promising research into inherited retinal dystrophies. This is only made possible by the donations and support that we receive by our community. Linda Laco in Newcastle, has just received some new funding from Retina UK. But thanks to earlier funding from Retina UK, Professor Laco and her team have used stem cell technology to generate retinal cells from patients with mutations in a key gene, sorry, excuse me, key gene involved in the splicing process, PRPF31, and have demonstrated that the retinal pigmented epithelial, the RPE, cells and photoreceptors are affected at the structural and the functional level. The newly funded project aims to develop a PRPF31 gene therapy to increase the levels of healthy PRPF31 and use the retinal cell model to assess the therapy's efficacy in restoring RPE and photoreceptor function. This is a highly collaborative study involving four institutions across the UK and Germany and provides a unique opportunity for rapid proof to concept, leading to a potential rapid translation to a phase one, two clinical trial for our, our, our PRP F31 RP patients as an immediate outcome. Between them, the faulty spliceosome genes are a relatively major cause of RP. So the outcomes of this project could be applicable to development of treatments for a much wider proportion of our community. We are also supporting a PhD studentship at Oxford University, which is co-funded by the Macula Society, that will look into potential new method for treating Stargardt disease and other conditions where a conventional gene therapy may not be possible. Under the supervision of Professor Robert McLaren, the student will investigate whether it is possible to use harmless viruses to carry special molecular tools into the retinal cells in order to edit and correct the defect defective gene code. Rather than targeting the DNA, this technique will aim to edit a different molecule called RNA that copies and then carries the genetic instruction from the center of the cell to the protein building machinery. The original DNA is hence unaltered and safety may be improved. We are also funding a PhD student supervised by Dr. Rob Collin at the Rijkwoud University in the Netherlands. And he has studied the different genetic mutations which lead to Stargardt disease and macular dystrophy, which affects people from childhood and for which there is no cure currently. Stargardt is usually caused by the mutations on the ABCA4 gene. Patients with two severe variants of ABCA4 develop sight loss early, as their code only continues the instructions to make harmful versions of the protein. 
Other people with a combination of severe and mild mutations produce a mixture of harmful and normal proteins, and so tend to avoid symptoms until much later. In some people with later onset Stargardt, bits of the genetic code are mistakenly skipped. So like a recipe with steps missing, the resulting protein doesn't turn out like it's supposed to. This project aims to understand how and why bits of the gene are skipped and to prevent the misreading of a gene that causes the damaging protein versions to be produced. The studentship has enabled and promising young scientists to lay the foundations for a future career in inherited sight loss research. Professor Maria Musagis has just submitted two final reports for very exciting projects. The first is for LCA, which is the most severe form of early onset retinal degeneration. This project has increased knowledge of, of the molecular basis of this disease and accelerates development of an effective treatment. Professor Musagi has developed new disease models, one using stem cells and one using zebrafish so that both can be used to increase the understanding of the effects of the disease-causing mutation on the RDH12 gene and test a potential new drug and gene editing treatments. This project continues to explore thanks to additional funding made direct to Moorfields Eye Charity from Retina UK. The second project explores an alternative to the traditional gene therapy. This may have implications for a wide range of inherited retinal dystrophies, not just Usher syndrome. SMAR vectors have the capacity to hold much larger genes and they have no viral components. The team are exploring whether this new approach represents a safe and effective treat future treatment option. As I said, the, um, and of course, we have our groundbreaking consortium, the UKRDC, which is helped to fund by Fight for Sight. This group has identified seven novel disease-causing genes, established comprehensive understanding of the role of nine further genes, and helped discover a brand new disease mechanism. Most importantly, the project has provided answers and choices for hundreds of individuals and their families, and helped establish an improved diagnosis for the future. We know now that around 70% of our community will now be able to get a genetic diagnosis and within some specific conditions, that percentage is even higher. We continue to fund this project so more of our community can have the choice of a genetic diagnosis. In 2019, you told us that you wanted to hear more from us on treatment updates and managing life with sight loss. So we started to do monthly webinars and podcasts on a variety of topics. And as I've said, 99% of those who, who attended were satisfied. So there'll be many more of those to come. You also told us in 2019, it would be beneficial to have informal meetings with others affected by sight loss. And then, then of course the pandemic hit. But what we did is we moved our local peer support group meetings online during the pandemic, and we're setting up new ones all the time. So if you are interested in meeting with a local group, please do ask the staff for one close to you. As a result of our sight loss survey, 43% of the people told us you weren't aware of genetic testing and it was not available for you. And we knew that you needed more information on genetic diagnosis. As we've said today and yesterday's conference, it's so important, not only for the future of research and diagnosis and treatments, but also for you as a family. To help with this, we launched our Unlock Genetics web website. 
It's packed with information and it's available to help you make more informed choices about your condition. The result is that more people have a genetic diagnosis and they understand that ge genetic diagnosis. It's up from 13% in 2019 to 31% now, and that's a huge jump in the, right in the right direction. As Denise said in the previous session, only 8% of you said that you'd experienced no emotional or psychological impacts. And of course, we've heard this afternoon about our brand new Discover Wellbeing course. And that aims to enable and support our community directly to better manage the emotional impacts of living with the condition. And this is one of many services that we have, including our helpline, our talk and support services, and they're all designed to protect and nurture good well-being. This service is not built for those in crisis, but rather for that crisis to never happen. And as Do Dr. Mari Thurston said, who helped us create this absolutely fabulous service, when your head is in the right place, you can achieve anything. And this is exactly what we're aiming for. You also said to us that more than 900 of you told you how sight loss impacts on your daily lives. We share your experiences with decision makers throughout the sector, the NHS and government, and we don't ever rest if there's an opportunity to get a treatment through the regulatory process. We have also fed into the NICE methodology review, hopefully aiding and smoothing the way for potential treatments to make their way through our complex systems straight to clinic, straight to you guys. We also held our professional conference yesterday where over 200 professionals helped us keep them updated with what you have told us is going well, what you need more of, and helped them support the IRD community absolutely directly. As I mentioned this morning, Retina UK is committed to serving you, the community, and driving treatments to market. Supporting all of our volunteers, researchers and partners is entirely based and completely reliant on the feedback and direction that we get from all of you. I would like to thank everybody who took the time to take part in our survey, give us feedback, and of course, to the team that analyzes that information and delivers on those wishes. And at this point, I'd like to reassure you that this staff team never rests when it comes to delivering what you need and what you've said you want. We have seen from our last survey that there are still lots and lots of challenges that are impacting you from your point of diagnosis experiences. And finding out that Retina UK here is here to support you and your family is another thing that we will be looking at. We know we get huge satisfaction rates. Nine out of 10 of you are positively impacted from your experience with Retina UK, but nearly 40% of people with the condition are not being referred to us. And we know we can resolve and improve that, that experience for you, the community. So please keep us informed on what you want us to do. Look for a local group near you, join us for a webinar, and find out more about our services, information, and the newest research coming over the horizon. I'd just like to say a massive thank you to all of you for today. It's been absolutely incredible to see you face to face again. We really appreciate your time and attention, and I look forward to seeing you all again. I am glancing to the back to see, Matt, if we've got any time for, no, no time, okay. <laughs> that was pretty clear, wasn't it? So I've got a note from Matt that I have to tell you all. He doesn't trust me with just a verbal. I have to get it written down. 
So as I've said, your feedback is really, really important to us. It's one of the most important things. So if you are able to fill in um, one of our feedback forms, which I believe are in the delegate bags and the team outside will have one and pass it back to a member of staff, I'd be most grateful. Please, could you also hand in your lanyards? Um, I'd love to thank the team and all of the volunteers that have helped us today. And if you do need some support getting back to New Street, the staff are here ready for you. We're going to just quickly change the setup front for our AGM, which should be starting in a couple of minutes. Um, but if you are leaving us now, we'd hope you could stay. But if you do need to leave us now, please have a very safe journey back. And we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you very much.